Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to play a debate for you that I had with Jason Mullet of Logical Belief Ministries and hosted by The Council. In this debate, we discuss our various views of Genesis 1. And for those of you who have listened to my previous episodes, you'll know that I hold to a polemical literary framework. So that's the position that I defended in the dialogue, and Jason defends a classical literal 24-hour day view. It was a great discussion, and Jason was a really gracious dialogue partner, so I thank him for that. I have some follow-up comments from the debate that I'll give in the next episode, which I'll actually be releasing right on the heels of this one. But I want to have the debate out first, so you all can hear it without my responses to color your hearing of it, so to speak. So with that, on with the show. We are live. Uh, welcome to an episode of the Council. And uh, tonight we have with us uh, Jason Mullet and Tyler Vela. They will be discussing uh, their views of Genesis 1. Um, real quick, uh, I wanted to introduce uh, Tyler is uh, part of the Free Thinker podcast, or he is the Free Thinker podcast. Um, and uh, you can check him out at uh, freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. I believe I got that right, Tyler, didn't I? Yeah, you did. Okay. And then Jason is part of Logical Belief Ministries. And again, I think he is Logical Belief Ministries. Um, and uh, that's over at Bible Thumping Wingnut. Is that correct, Jason? Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. All righty. Um, with that, uh, again, tonight we're going to be discussing Genesis 1. We're going to be discussing the text, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and open it up to uh, Tyler. I'm going to uh, pray real quick before we get started. Um, dear Heavenly Father, I ask tonight that uh, that what we do here tonight will be glorifying and edifying, um, glorifying to you and edifying to the, the believers listening, that th- those who will be listening. So, uh, God, I pray for these two brothers as they speak. I pray that they um, um, that they treat each other with respect, and that uh, that you would um, bring bring peace and and wisdom to us tonight. Uh, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, with that, uh, Tyler, why don't you go ahead and uh, start? Sure. So. Um... To avoid kind of just reduplicating what I've already done in uh, five episodes um, for the opening statement or, or written in 
published paper. Uh, for my opening statement, uh, I just want to make a couple comments about the debate at large and then a, a very brief summary of what my view is. Uh, my view of Genesis 1 is that of polemical literary framework model. It's basically a synthesis of the work of scholars like Meredith Klein, Lee Irons, Bruce Waltke, John Walton, and John Curran. So put all those in one big pot, mash them up, and that's kind of the view that I hold. First, let me say what my view is not. My view is not old of creationism and hiding. I don't hold to old earth creationism. I'm not a theistic evolutionist. I don't disagree with young earth creationists because I want to bring, quote unquote, secular science or whatever that even means into the back door of Christendom. I'm not, as polemicists like Gary North have said, academically insecure and willing to distort the text to make it more palatable to modern evolutionary science or a naturalistic way of thinking. If anyone's listening to my podcast, they'll know that uh, I am ardently opposed to naturalism. In fact, part of what brought me to my view was reading John Walton and realizing that the ancient Near Eastern worldview was simply not a scientific one. That is, they did not think about the world in a materialistic, scientific manner the same way that we do. They not only did not think about the world in a scientific, normative, or mechanistic kind of terms as we do today, but they also were not trying to give scientific, normative, or mechanistic explanations for the world they saw around them. They tried to give functional explanations. For the ancients, something existed because or when it functioned. So I'm not an older creationist or a younger creationist with regard to the biblical teaching because I directly repudiate what's called the concordist hermeneutic. That is, that we should try to find concord or lexical agreement between the way the biblical text describes its own cosmology and how we explore, understand, and describe our understanding of the cosmos. Hey, the attempt to read Genesis 1 through an evolutionary cosmological or creation science framework, to my understanding, is actually the view that is the practice of imposing a certain scientific framework back onto the text and would be entirely foreign to the original author and the audience. When I hear creation scientists, just like secular scientists, trying to talk about flood geology and the hydronic cycle in Genesis 1, I, like I think Moses would have done, simply think blindly at them and wonder what in the world that has to do with the text. So that's not what my view or my convictions or my intentions are. I have no truck with a specific scientific theory or view or even some desire to achieve harmony between the text and modern cosmology or geology or whatever. Rather, I read Genesis 1 and I see numerous markers of the historical context of the ancient Near East, of the religious myths of Egypt being polemicized and satirized, a feature that's very, very common throughout the Old Testament, but especially throughout Genesis and Exodus and the works of Moses, and the connections with Egypt. I see in the text a highly stylized literary structure with nearly every attribute of Hebrew poetry except the use of doublets or couplets, unless that is that we consider the six days of natural creation to be three couplets of the kingdom and the kings, which is represented in framework view. We see repetition, both structural and verbal, a consistent use of seven as a framework for statements, movements in the narrative itself, we see theme movement and development. We see chiasms, parallels, foreshadowing, and the paucity of 
words for an inversely complex series of statements, and so forth. These are all features of Hebrew poetry. Outside of the poems of the Bible, we hardly see so many literary structures in such a small passage anywhere else. I also see a series of problems that arose solely from a literal and diachronic reading passage. Diachronic means a, a, a chronological or through time view. We see light before the luminaries, the separation of the light from the darkness completed twice, even after the first time was called good. We see days before God creates the heavenly bodies with the express purpose of making them out to be days. We see fauna created before man in conflict with man created Borfana in Genesis 2-4. We see a change in time between what Klein called the lower register time, or earthly time, and the upper register time, or heavenly time, as we move from day 6 to day 7. All of these are red flags on the field that tell us that a plain and literal reading of the text may be unwarranted. So, my view, in short, is that we find in Genesis 1 is a synchronic, or or a presentation not ordered chronologically, featured in common throughout the entire Bible, along with a literary framework of a week, where days one through three are the creation of created kingdoms, and days four through six are the creation of creature kings to rule over those kingdoms as vice regents to the one true sovereign. The Sabbath, God himself in his garden temple. And that this presentation does in such a way as to satirize or tear down the polytheism of Egypt from which Israel had just escaped and warns the Israelites not to turn back to such false views. This view not only is the best explanation of the historical context, I believe, I think believe it's the clear thematic, verbal, and structural parallels with the Memphite temple texts and the literary features and movements that we observe in Genesis 1, but it also suffers none of the conflicts and potential contradictions that arise from text when pushed through the sieve of love literal reading, like I just mentioned. Now, doesn't this undermine the historicity of the account? Not at all. We know the Gospels are written in synchronic order. Does that mean they're not historical? Well, doesn't saying that the seven days are just a structure and not actual days ruin its historicity? Not unless Mark saying, and then, undermines the historicity in those events that were actually separated by weeks, months, or years. Well, doesn't saying that it's poetry or some form of uh, high, high literature mean that it isn't history? Not unless we want to say that Moses' song of the Exodus or Deborah's song of the victory of judges were not describing historical events. So aren't we just updating our reading to match modern science and thus using the book of nature to interpret the book of Revelation? As I said above, that's not what I'm advocating for. But even if I had, this would not be without precedent. For surely no one here believes in a solid firmament that holds back the celestial waters and in which the stars and the sun move anymore. Surely no one here believes that the earth is a flat disk anymore. Surely no one believes that the earth is orbited by the sun any longer. No, we live after Galileo and Copernicus. The hyperliteralists lost those battles, and the church altered how it translated the passages about the sun running its circuit across the sky and resting in the place of the beckoning of Moses. We no longer read them, quote, normally or literally. But that doesn't mean that we sacrifice them as history. We read them phenomenologically or symbolically now. 
We say Job is poetry, and thus we have no problem with the statements about creation throughout it, but especially in chapters 37 and 38 being less than literal. This was the conflict prior to Galilean Copernicus, but the literal is lost. And now we say that just wasn't what the text was saying. It's not a violation of inerrancy or inspiration or historicity. We just have altered our reading. The genre and the features of the text have altered how we read it. It doesn't mean that we're, we're, uh, that we're confusing the text or we're distorting it. The text has always mean what it meant. Our interpretation just was incorrect. So what of Genesis 1? Must we read it literally? What if the authorial intent was like that of Job 37 to 38? Both mentioned the firmament, if one is symbolic, not the other. Is simply begging the question to say that Genesis 1 teaches a literal solar week, and therefore we must interpret it as a literal solar week. If that is not what Moses meant when he penned Genesis 1, if he was not inspired to write it like the author of Job was inspired to write Job 37 to 38, then we're free to read it as a not a literal solar week. And if the solar week is so vital to the scriptural teaching, so foundational, so pivotal as to almost be a test for one's orthodoxy in some circles, then it's one of the most important doctrines never repeated in scriptures. Thank you very much. All right, Jason, um, go ahead. You have... All right. Well, thanks, uh, guys, for uh, for hosting this discussion, and thanks, uh, Tyler, for reaching out to me and asking me to have this discussion. So I'm just going to very briefly uh, address my own position. I do hold to the standard uh, young earth creationist view. I don't think it's a scientific view necessarily of the text, but a literal historical view of the text. Uh, and I believe that in Exodus 28, uh, verse 8, uh, where God uh, lays out the commandment of the Sabbath day, and he says, uh, six days you shall labor and do all your work. And then just two verses later, uh, the same uh, literary construct is therefore in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day to alter my exegesis of that passage within two verses indicates that I have some sort of a... Um, external system by which I'm applying it to the text. And so uh, I'm primarily going to be addressing uh, in my opening statements um, uh, Tyler's published work entitled A Historical and Grammatical and Polemical Reading of Genesis Chapter 1. And I'm going to be addressing what I believe are two assumptions that Tyler brings and one failed argument. Uh, the first I want to look at is what I believe is Tyler's assumption of naturalism. Um, which he, he mentioned in his opening statement that um, uh, he decries, but uh, let's go ahead and actually look at it within his actual published work and uh, quote uh, from um, his uh, published paper here. And I quote, uh, for example, what sort of ethical problems arise if God created the earth, not just with the appearance of maturity, but with the illusion of having a history that it did not in fact have? While some will have problems with the appearance of maturity, anyone who believes that Adam could be created as mature should have no problem. The dilemma arises not in the appearance of, of maturity, but in the illusion of a false history. If the earth did not exist for as long as science shows us that it does, then that would mean that God created the earth with craters from meteor impacts that never happened. It would be like creating Adam not only mature, but with scars on his body with cuts 
that he never endured. That kind of pointless deception seems to provide a real ethical dilemma. So this is the first um, assumption that I want to address, which I think is the thread which unravels all of uh, Tyler's argumentation. Uh, this argument assumes historical naturalism in order to argue for a form of providentially guided historical naturalism. It reveals the bias and fundamental presupposition that Tyler is bringing to the text. I'm not sure why Tyler believes that the young earth creationist view is that God created the earth with impact creators. None of us actually believe that. Uh, Tyler only believes that uh, these are much older because he assumes the naturalistic view of history is true and that the dating methods based on these same naturalistic assumptions for meteorites and impact craters have true conclusions. Uh, human beings as fallen creatures, unless, of course, they are not, not supernaturalists of another form, will not assume biblical supernaturalism. They must, by necessity, assume some form of naturalism which results in a naturalistic history of the world. Tal reveals his bias and assumption when he states that to believe Genesis 1 has strict historical narrative contradicts a naturalistic view of history, and as a result, it makes it appear that God is being deceptive. It is only deceptive, though, if one chooses to assume a naturalistic view of history instead of God's special revelational view of history. This is obviously fallacious, an example of begging the question and arguing in a circle. Tyler assumes a naturalistic view of history as true from the outset, so when he encounters the supernatural revelation of history in Scripture, he rejects it as historical narrative on the basis of this assumption and necessarily has to come up with alternatives to the historical view of the text or abandon his assumption that the naturalistic view of history is true. Uh, Tyler goes on to quote Meredith Klein, who is a proponent of the framework model, um, and he quotes him here. It says, the view that Genesis 1 is chronological operates with the assumption that God not operate through normal providence in creating the world. But Genesis 2.5 goes against such a view since it describes a time on the earth when the earth was without vegetation because there was not yet rain. This demonstrates that divine providence was at work during the creation period. Thus, Genesis 1 cannot be strictly chronological, end quote. Klein in this quote has the same naturalistic assumption of history of the world as Tyler does. This causes both to be biased against the supernatural history presented in Genesis 1. Genesis 2.5 provides no difficulty to the strict historical or as young earth creationist view of the text. It is a straw man to state that young earth creationist view does not hold that God uses normal providence in creating the world. God utilized both normal providence, for example, evening and morning were the first day, and punctuated supernatural events, for example, let there be light. Genesis 2.5 is simply stating that at some point prior to God creating the vegetation of the third day and the creation of man, and that the earth was without vegetation and that there was no rain. This is to set the stage for the statement that God used a mist in Genesis 2.6, the following verse, to water the earth instead of rain once he had created the vegetation. Klein and Tyler assume that God could only have used normative providential means to create the world because it is more aligned to the unbelieving naturalistic view of history, which they accept and presuppose as true. So they reject and must find a way to reinterpret the clear, punctuated supernatural events that have been revealed by God to have occurred over the course of six days. The second assumption that I want to address that Tyler has is that he assumes that polemical narrative and historical narrative are mutually exclusive categories. Tyler moves on after not proving his assumption of naturalism to argue that the texts of Genesis 1 and 2 are polemical and not strict history. The problem is, is that the texts can be both polemical and historical. These are not mutually 
mutually exclusive categories. The same God who inspired scripture has also ordained history. The story of the sacrifice of Isaac, for example, in Genesis 22, is polemical, allegorical, and historical. Polemical as an argument by the Apostle James against antinomianism in James chapter 2, verse 21. It's allegorical as a prefigurement of the sacrifice of Christ, for example, a substitute was provided, and is confirmed as historical in Hebrews chapter 11. All of the arguments that Tyler makes throughout the rest of his article to prove the polemical nature of Genesis are irrelevant to his case, and in most cases would not even be disputed by me. Tyler goes on to argue in his paper that the author of Genesis uses myth as a polemic against the myths of the Egyptians. While I agree that Genesis is a well-constructed account that is designed to be a polemic against the Egyptians' account of creation, I believe it is just as well-constructed by the Holy Spirit as a polemic against the present-day naturalistic myths of creation. Thirdly, I think uh, Tyler has a failed argument. He fails to prove that the Genesis creation account of chronological creation days denoted by morning and evening, so the ordinal creation days, first day, second day, uh, bracketed by morning and evening, are polemical. He fails to prove that. He assumes it, but he fails to prove it. Uh, Tyler has done a great job in demonstrating the author of Genesis contrasted different supernatural events in Genesis 1 in opposition to comparative events in Egyptian mythology. However, noticed one thing to be conspicuously absent in his comparison. Tyler never demonstrated how the account in Genesis 1 of the six 24-hour days was a polemic against any account in Egyptian mythology of six days. The question is, why does he consider the six-day motif a polemic, even if I would accept his assumption that historical narrative and polemical narrative are mutually exclusive categories? Why has he not, uh, when he has not even proven that th these are polemical? Um, if he cannot demonstrate the six days are polemical, can I accept them as strict history? Um, also, I, I want to address uh, something that I think is uh, somewhat disingenuous, and I would want to challenge Tyler on this. He continually claims that his arguments about the creation account are not arguments either for or against young earth creation or old earth creation models, and that he is just mainly mystified about why we would even look at this text, and he often says scientific. I, I don't think that that's a proper representation. Uh, I'm looking at it as strictly historical. Now, obviously, historical events in the past could have scientific present-day implications, especially in historical science. Uh, and that proponents of, um, that of either the young earth or old earth creation models are missing the point that Genesis is not about history, but is entirely and only polemical. There's a problem, though, with this claim, because Tyler rejects Genesis 1 as a historical narrative of punctuated supernatural events. He ends up with the same conclusion as the old earth creationists and embraces the same unbelieving naturalistic view of history. Tyler is just as much arguing for old earth creation as any other old earth creationist. He's just using a slightly different methodology to do so. His actual opposition to old earth creationist proponents is not in their conclusions, but in their approach to the argument. I find his claim to not be either for or against young earth or old earth creationist models to be somewhat disingenuous. Tyler starts as an old earth as all old earth creationists do by assuming that the naturalistic view of history is true. And then voila, guess what? He ends up concluding that the text of scripture reveals that the naturalistic history of the world is true. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's where I'll end it there. All right. Thanks, Jason. Um, now from 
here we're gonna we're gonna break from a strict debate format and we're gonna open up for dialogue. Um, Tyler, did you want to address uh, Jason first? Uh, kind of, or just open it up and let you guys figure it out? Yeah. Well, I think I think the impetus is is obviously going to be on on my view of, of Genesis one. Uh, the Jason's young Earth creationist or twenty four hour view will, will come up because uh, rejection of the of the our view is one of the things that led me to, or is actually the main thing that led me to um, my literary framework view. Um, so it might be best just in pragmatic order um, for me to respond to some of the things that were said about my view. And the, the young earth and, and literal day view will kind of uh, wash out as we go through those. Sure. Uh, Jason, you okay with that? Sure, sure. As long as I can um, interject, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because uh, sure. we want to have uh, an actual dialogue. So. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Uh, so uh, yeah, go ahead, Tyler. Uh, go yeah. ahead, and in particular, in addressing to what I made in the statement, and I'll let you know if there's something in there that uh, uh, I'd like to to discuss further. Sure, sure. So uh, the the first thing I, I, I'm going to kind of go in reverse order. Um, the first thing is, is um, you know that I'm not an older creationist, right? Well, I understand that you say that. However, your conclusion is an old Earth. So I, I would say that you, you disagree with the methodology of old Earth creationists of trying to uh, fit the Genesis 1 account into some sort of historical construct. I, I agree that you object to that methodology, but you don't disagree with the conclusion. What, what, what do you think? The, what do you think? If you were to state the conclusion, what do you think the conclusion is that I agree with? Uh, the conclusion is is that you embrace the same naturalistic uh, view of the age of the universe and all that as uh, naturalistic secular scientists. I don't though. I'm I'm actually I, I'm not disingenuous. I'm honestly agnostic about the age of the universe. I don't know. I don't even claim to know. I don't. I don't okay. affirm those. So, affirm it so I, I'm interested. Then okay, okay. Then I would actually want to ask you in reference to a statement you made in your um. Then, then how am I supposed to take where you say uh, the dilemma arises not in the appearance of maturity, but in the illusion of a false history? If the Earth did not exist for as long as science, what, what science are you talking about, and for how long? What are you talking about? Right. So, so here's so so the, the, I wanted I wanted to hone on this because I think this is important. Um, your your claim that I have an assumption of historical naturalism is. I mean, we can we can pan that out because I, I honestly think it sounds it sounds bizarre to me. It doesn't sound accurate to what I actually affirm at all. Okay. So, and my statement about that actually wasn't. Um, I think you took it as main reason for my view or as a controlling uh, aspect of my view, but it actually wasn't right. I, I'm just I'm just saying you know there, there are other well no no I understand you don't that arise yeah, from it. It's kind of a peripheral issue. Yeah, I understand you don't believe that's a controlling aspect of your view, but that's what I'm actually challenging you with. I'm saying that it is. Right. Uh, so here's, so here's the point of your statement in your article is not, you don't actually hold to that. Well, no, but you can, in, in, in articles, you can have tertiary issues that are addressed, right? That, that aren't actually an assumption of the argument made within the paper. Right? So, so, if you, so if you read the entire context of that, for, for leading up to the, the for example, 
So proponents of the framework model often point to some of the contradictions that arise from a strictly historicist chronological approach to the days, as well as other theological problems. For example, right, so this is not, I'm not actually using this as a defense for the thesis in the paper, but right? I'm saying one of the reasons why uh, framework uh, advocates like myself reject both uh, young earth, old earth, literary day view, gap, gap theory views, right? The, kind of the, the interpretive frameworks or the interpretive views of young earth and, and old earth creationists um, is because uh, when, you re, when, you, when you read the text that way, certain problems pop out, right? But do you believe that that is a true dilemma? It is a true dilemma that it, it creates a false illusion of history. That's what you use, so, illusion of yes. false history. So here's, so here's, here's the challenge, right? And, and to be honest, I could be wrong on the challenge. I'm happy to give this up as a challenge if I can hear an answer, right? So the example I give, so I understand mature creation, right? So I'm not one of those people that's going to say, you know, the universe being created with the appearance of age, um, you know, or, or light already in motion is a problem. I don't think that would be a problem. In the same way, I don't think it's a problem for Adam to be created mature. I don't have a, mm -hmm. a problem with that, right? Yeah. My question is, would there be an ethical issue we have to acknowledge at least the potentiality. Would there be an ethical issue, for example, if Adam was created fully mature with scars on his back from a bear attack that never happened? Right? If, if he was created yeah, with the appearance I, 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 of, of history that, that, yeah. that didn't occur. That's, that's a good question. And could I, could I flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah, um, this, is, this is something that I have brought up. For example, you mentioned Starlight. And, and I don't really, you know, want to get into a lot of these. We can run down all kinds of rabbit trails. but. Um, what, what I do want to address is because you do you do point out a good question when, when you ask the question that way if Adam was created with scars of a bear attack is that is that uh, an illusion of false history I, I would agree yes that's true and that's why for example I don't accept any theories when it comes to uh, starlight um, as being God created light in transit because that would mean and this is why I reject all those theories that when we're observing uh, distant let's say supernovas that are maybe you know a hundred thousand light years away or a million light years away that that event did not actually happen and god simply put it into uh that's why i don't accept those theories that's why i look at alternate solution uh i don't believe that god created light in transit i believe either there's options like the white hole cosmology theory or the anisotropic synchrony convention there, there's there's different options out there that can solve that problem i just don't accept the one that a lot of young earth creationists have heard give that god created light transit because of exactly the reason that you brought up now the example that you give of ex example for craters uh as an example of it i i reject the naturalistic dating methods that they use to date craters and so if there is a crater i believe it's occurred since the flood and that there's simply dating right so uh, later than that. So I don't believe that God created the earth. I don't believe the moon was created with craters in it. I don't believe, you know, anything like, I don't believe anything like that, which is most young earth creationists. I don't know of any young earth creationists that actually would support that view. So. So, so, so that would explain why I think, so I think you're actually missing what the objection is. And, may, and you know, honestly, looking at the set, looking at the, my sentence in my paper, I can see how it can be misunderstood. I'm not trying to say you're like literate or something like that. Um, the, the, the argument actually, I don't, I'm not appealing to, to you know, carbon dating or whatever of meteors. That, that's actually not the argument. Um, 
basically the, the idea is, so, so you said you think all the craters are made after the flood. Yes. So we, we have craters that, that on, on the earth alone that are, that are I think the largest one is something like uh, three miles across or something like that, right? Or the meteor that struck and made the crater the size was three miles apart. Or, or, I mean, some, some, some ginormous thing. Right? Mm -hmm. If a meteor like that had hit Earth, right, we would still be living in the aftermath of a meteor like that. I mean, the aftermath would last for tens of thousands of years if it hit the Earth during a time where humans Not only would it have probably wiped out massive amounts of life on Earth, um, but we would still be observing the enormous impacts of that on life on Earth. If it was in, if it happened during this time period of a young Earth creationist, or if it, if it happened within the last, say, three to four thousand years after the flood, yeah, I, I simply have to disagree with your assessment there. Um, I, I don't agree with that, uh, and that's that's getting into you know we'd have to you'd have to bring in somebody that's more skilled in science when it comes to uh, geological activity uh, and also uh, astrophysics and things like that. Um, to, to do more of an assessment on that, and you and I are neither one of us are trained in that, but I would disagree with. Yeah, and I, I just did want I did want to point out that you guys did want to stick to the text, so yeah, yeah, and I want to get back to I want to get back to the text. So, but my so my, my point here merely is that I, just, I wanted Jason to be able to finish his thought. I just wanted to make sure that we. No, no, no. I agree with that. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. and, and, I, and I'm fine. I mean, I I was the one who was actually advocating sticking to the text, so I get it. So my my point here though is that. Because Jason, he, he accused my reading of, of this naturalistic assumption of naturalistic view of history, right? Based on, based on an assumption that I was saying about like carbon dating and all that kind of stuff, which, which was actually underlying the objection, right? So, so, so the problem, it's not even really objection, it's just a possible problem that comes out when you read the passage through that type of interpretive grid. Right? So, so when, when we sit here and we think, okay, let's imagine that NASA said that, you know, a Three mile wide uh, meteor was about to hit the Earth. I don't think any any of us would be like, oh, well, that'll just pass in, in a couple of years, anyways. You know, most of us are going to live, and, and we won't be living with the outcome. I mean, most of us are going to realize. I mean, that's 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 going to you know pretty much wipe out life on the planet. Um, so so that that's actually the point, right? So and and I don't expect you to have an answer. You you could disagree that you know a meteor that size striking Africa would have any type of impact on the global, you know, uh, ecosystem. That, that, that's that's well, fine. Of course it would have a global impact. Uh, that, that's a straw man of what I said. I just don't think it would have an impact to the extent that you you are stating that it would. Obviously, I think that it would probably cause an ice age. Um, uh, in some cases, I think that's what, uh, why uh, right after the flood there was a period. Uh, once again, that's getting into, I think, what we're not supposed to be focused on. So Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, so, so to use that then, because that was one of your reasons to say that I have an assumption of a naturalistic history. No, again, the reason I said that you have an assumption of naturalistic history is because you made the argument that it is an illusion of a false history. The statement that um, that uh, it has an illusion of a false history. That's uh, no, 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 a I, kind of deception, a pointless deception that provides a real ethical dilemma. So that's why I'm no, saying it's, it's that's an assumption. a naturalistic view of history. No, no, it's in the subjunctive. It's saying, it's, it's saying if, if you read it through this framework, right, you, you potentially have this problem that arises that you would then need to answer. No, I notice you're putting it in a conditional right. state. I know that you're putting it in the subjunctive. Yeah. Uh, subjunctive. 
but I'm, I'm still saying that you would have to, you're, you're still presenting this as an actual dilemma. And I'm saying the only way that this is a dilemma is if you presuppose naturalism. Now you can, you can say, well, it's not a, it's, it's not a true dilemma. Uh, but then I don't know why you would put it in your, in your paper. It doesn't so, so is it, so is a, is it a presupposition of, of, of a naturalistic view of to, uh, hold the very common, uh, view? I mean, I, I don't even think this is a controversial view among young earth, old earth, Christian, non-Christian that, that a meteor five miles long would have ramifications for, you know, thousands of years. I mean, it, I don't. I don't see how that's an assumption of a naturalistic view of history. That just seems like a disagreement about what potential impact a media. That's not actually. Have. Yeah, your but argument. That's, but is, that's actually what's underlying the potential objection. Your, your, yeah, your your argument is is that these um, these would have been would have to predate uh, the creation narrative according to the Younger's creationist model. Um, and I'm just I'm just telling you that uh, I don't I don't accept that uh, i don't accept other naturalistic uh you know claims of, of dating either there's limiting factors even scientifically uh to those sort of uh, long uh, period long, long dates in history so um you know we could we could bring on somebody like jason lyle to address the um the, the creators if you want to at some point but i i, I reject that argument i mean at this point I, we've probably moved on because we're a standstill where i just i'm not affirming or denying i and I'd be, I'd be happy to be shown that meteors, that's not a problem. And then, great. If I could be shown so, that that wouldn't be a problem, great. Then that's, that's not a problem. Be a, uh, but, but, well, but, okay, but there we go, Tyler. That's actually the point. So, so, so if, if, um, so, so, so let, me, let me put it this way. So if somebody comes up with, um, uh, proves to you, Tyler, or that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not possible. Would you um, would you relinquish your belief in that? I don't think someone could. So again, I, I'm going to go back to presuppositions. I don't think someone could prove that. Okay, so why don't you have the same presupposition when it comes to the creation narrative as literal history? Because I don't think the I don't think our interpretation of, of the creation narrative is something that is. Um, <sighs> Because I think you're inconsistent in your exegesis. I think that you would not accept the exegesis of the New Testament text in the same way that you do. Now, I know that you make arguments that it's polemical, but I think you also assume that they're mutually exclusive categories, which I also brought up in my opening statement. So right, I think which, I wanted, which, I wanted, which I wanted to get to. So, right. so and, I, and I actually, I'm not, so there, there are core tenets of, of of Christian theology that I think are presuppositionally derived. So our view of Genesis 1, I just don't think is one of them. In the same way our view of Job 37 and 38, I don't think is one of them. Right? We, we, have, we have a panoply of options available to us. I, 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 don't, I, I think it's rather question-making to say, well, if, if you don't read it in this type of uh, wooden literal sense, um, Despite all the, and we can we can go into what I think are some of the problems that arise. It. So I'm an amillennialist and not a dispensationalist, so I understand the difference between uh, wooden liberalism right. and and reading uh, the text with authorial intent. The the problem right. with so, so is your. So my question then, let me ask you then. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. My question then, what would you do if a dispensationalist comes to you and says, mm -hmm. "Well, <clears throat> the only possible reading of Revelation is a futurist one." Why are you ignoring the clear teaching of Scripture? What if someone came to you and 
showed you that an amillennial position is impossible within the scriptures. Well, if they demonstrated that from the scripture, the problem is, is the dispensational view looks at certain sections of Revelation and reads them in a historical context, but it doesn't others. And so it's an inconsistent hermeneutic where, uh, th that's why I challenge that, that, uh, that, that, um, that particular argument. And that's why I think the same reason I reject, uh, dispensationalism is the really the same reason I reject your view, because I th think that you are inconsistent in your exegesis. For example, I don't believe in the text that I brought up in Exodus 20 that you would accept that sort of exegesis uh, from, I've, I've heard you debate uh, Leighton Flowers, uh, you and I, I guess, are, are, uh, are united there. Um, <laughs> uh, and I don't, I don't think that you would accept that sort of exegesis from Leighton Flowers, but I think in Genesis, where the example in, or I'm sorry, in Exodus 20, um that that you would accept that from and we can go we can go to exodus 20 because i because i would actually say that i think i think you're also being inconsistent on your view right because because i think that when you come to genesis 1 you're saying it has to be literal history mm -hmm. and, and i'm just gonna say we just disagree about what the genre is in the same way that you disagree you and i disagree with the dispensationalists on what basically the, the impacts of the genre revelation are well, um, let's, and let's, and when and when when we go let's let's say we went to, to Job thirty seven and thirty eight and I look at you and say well that mm -hmm. that that those are statements about creation you're going to come to me and you're going to say yeah but there's markers in the text that we don't take it as, as literal and I'm going to say well Genesis one I see markers in the text that I don't take it as as a diachronic account of of, of history and I'm not being inconsistent I'm looking at the text and I'm saying are there markers in this text that tell me to read this other than a straightforward literal of history i'm gonna say absolutely i think there are and that's and that's some of the arguments in the paper i also i also want to say that i, I think it's actually incorrect to say that i think historicity and political or literary are are mutually exclusive i don't at all and actually i make this argument in the paper and elsewhere and i say you know for example is is the is, is moses's poem is that historical narrative is moses's poem exodus 15 historical narrative Yeah, you think his poem is historical narrative? That's both genres. Well, no, it's talking about historical event. It's, Correct. It's in yeah. poetic format, but I absolutely but, agree with you. Okay, I just think Genesis so, one is the same thing. We 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 have something less than literal history, but that doesn't mean that it's not historical. Okay, so let me let me. I want to ask you this. So in in Genesis, okay, so you point out uh, that in Genesis one, you do a great job of this. I like this, uh, this point that you made in your article. You did a great job of pointing out the polemical nature of Genesis 1-1 in opposition to the Egyptian god Adam, uh, being um, the, the myth of uh, Egyptian creation account is that the, the god Adam was brought about after the event in the beginning, and that Yahweh is causally prior to in the beginning. So you would support a literal reading of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and you say that that is polemical and that you can also take it literally. So why in just five verses later, uh, where you didn't demonstrate that the, the, the day construct has a polemical nature to it, I didn't find anywhere in your article where you pointed out how the six-day motif in the... Um, the Genesis account is a polemic against Egyptian uh, creation myth. 
Correct. Uh, but yet, I can't take that as um, historical. Uh, I can't take that historically literally as I can Genesis. Correct. So, so I'm not an allegorist. An allegorical method. I, I think you and I agree that something can be so just because something is symbolic or literary, um, even if it doesn't have a one to one correlation with history, doesn't mean that it's not representing a, a, a literal fact or a historical fact, right? So when, when Jesus says, I am the door, this is a common joke, but we know that Jesus doesn't mean he's a piece of wood with a handle that goes between outside and inside. But we do think that that represents a real, actual truth. That is, that is a literal truth about Jesus being the only way, the only path, the only entrance into God. So so in order, so it's not it's not vain allegory like the allegorical pages, right? There, there's there's a concrete reality that undergirds biblical symbolism, right? So so I I have no problem saying that uh, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it is a polemical assault against one of the Egyptian gods. While at the same time, I actually think that there's there there is. Um, Interesting. So, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. is a seven-word phrase. It follows the sevenfold structure of the entire uh, entire first chapter. Um, but at the same time, we we would also say that there, there's nothing in the text that says um, that prior to anything existing, God was right. We get that from other passages. Right. This says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? It just means logically that God stands uh, above and prior uh, and transcendent to creation. Right? Now, to, to the other point, uh, I don't actually, I never argue that the seven days is polemical precisely because I don't think the seven days is polemical. The seven days, okay, the so seven so. days is the framework part of the polemical framework. No, 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 I understand that. So, I understand that. I understand that in the argument. I, I do. My question is, is why does that exclude me from reading it as literal history? Right. So, so this is where, this is where if you only stuck to the paper, I think you're missing some of the arguments, right? And this is, this is why I expanded the series so far to five episodes, not just the three that, that, that rehashed the paper. Right? So one of the reasons why I argue for not only a political literary framework view, right? So I see the political aspect. I think we agree. See, the literal aspect, I think we agree. The framework is where you start to have questions. But the motivations is actually where you're questioning, right? So one of the reasons, and I should explain this for those listening, one of the reasons why I hold to, uh, uh, see, even I'm hesitant to say a non-literal view. What, really what I say I want to say is a non-synchronic view, right? Or, or sorry, a non-diachronic view. I hold to a synchronic Right is largely because uh, the when I was a young Earth creationist, which I used to be, I used to be an Earth creationist, and I used to hold to a literary or to a literal twenty-four hour view. For some of the problems and the contradictions, I think are unresolvable um, within the text itself. Right. So, so what what happens is when I start reading the passage through the sieve, through the filter of a a a, di a diachronic position like a 24-hour literal view, problems pop out, right? And that led me to look for other systems that didn't have quite so many problems. Once those problems, I didn't think really have good answers to them. Um, so, so what, is, what is one of your unresolvable problems? Right, so, so one of the problems that I have, and, and there are many problems, 
actually have with with what comes out, what pops out when you when you read these things. Um, one of the problems is I think you have, and, and by the way, we can get to the Exodus passage right because I think it's I actually think that passage is fascinating. One of the problems is right before the Marys, right? And I don't mean this in some type of crass. I know that like old Earth creationists love to be like, why do you assume that? Why, why do you assume that God could not uh, provide a light source before? I, I've heard this objection many times. Why, why do you assume that? I'm not sure. Let, let, me, let me stop you right there. What do you th think my objection is? Oh, okay. Well, I'll, well, I'll proceed. Maybe I'm... Uh, my, yeah. my, my bad. You're jumping the... Yeah. <laughs> my bad. It's, it's a really common I've heard it so many times I expected, so I could... Yeah. You, well, you probably hold it from, heard it from older creationists so many times. So my, my objection isn't God couldn't have created a supernatural light. No problem with that. God, God is omnipotent. God, if God can create everything from nothing, absolutely, He could create a supernatural light. That's not a problem. Right? So, so the, the argument is, uh, and remember also, you're you're arguing for a plain meaning of the text. First of all, it doesn't say that it's a supernatural light. Nowhere in the text that it says it's a supernatural. That's not drawn from the text, right? That that that's an inference that's made as out of necessity to respond to an objection to a possible contradiction. It's not actually. It's not actually. What in do you the text. mean by supernatural light? What, what do you mean by supernatural light? I, I mean, uh, ex explain what you mean by that. Because do you mean supernaturally created light, or do you mean uh, it's actually uh, photon? I mean, I believe there were photons. Right. So, so do you believe that there was any type of natural source for the photons, like the luminaries, or was God in an act of perpetual creation of photons? I don't know. Either. I so, don't think it matters. The objection, however, though, is this. Right? It's not actually, could God create light? Either one of those. Supernatural light. Some, some Earth creationists have said, oh, well, you know, we see God is the light in, in Revelation, so therefore, you know, God could have been the light, which I think is a bizarre answer because I think God, it clearly says God created this light. Um, it, it could be, you know, some secondary, you know, some proto-sun that doesn't exist anymore. It could be, uh, a, you know, a continuous stream of, of special creation. Of photo I have no idea. Whatever, whatever the answer is, I have no problem saying God could have done that. Right? So my objection isn't God couldn't have done that. My objection is twofold. First is that God tells us on day one that he created the light and he separated the the light from the darkness, right? There's, there's definite articles in front of those things. Those are specific contexts, uh, specific con concepts, right? So he separated the light from the dark darkness. And at the end of day one, he called it good. Right? So, so that light, whatever that light was, it, it, he called it good. And it was, brought, it, and it was brought about by the separation of the light from the darkness. Right? And then there was morning and the evening the first day. And we're going to say that, that, you know, the young earth view is going to say that was a literal. 24 hours. The problem arises in day four. Right? Day four comes along and God says, you know what I'm going to do on day four? I'm going to, I'm going to separate the light from the darkness. Again, even though it was already done and it was good, right? which is a problem. Right? The second aspect that's a problem of day four is God comes along and he says, let there be light lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And so on day four, God comes along and he says, now I'm going to create the thing that's needed, that, that, that God himself, right? So if we're going to take a normal, natural reading of this, 
God is saying, this is the thing that I'm creating to do this function. I am creating these lights to serve the function of separating the light from the darkness and in separating the day from the night, daytime from nighttime, and for serving as a sign for days. Right? So you, so you have on day four, God, God saying, the, I'm creating these things and their purpose, their function is to do what I've already done in day one and I've already called it. Right? That, that um, is a problem for me. Right? And that, uh, okay. That's not a natural so you, you history. You, you that's from the text. You don't, you don't view those two, uh, two things as possibly being in two different senses? So, there's so, no possibility that God's speaking in two different senses in the first here, sense. Well, he, he's simply talking here, here's about what, here's what I'm doing. Between, between light and darkness. And in the next one, he's, uh, he's noting the division uh, that is a sign for us between day and night. So, again, so the, there's definite articles the night, the light from the dark. These are specific things. It's not general light, mm -hmm. general dark. Right? It's repeated. Same concept. But also notice, and this is this is what I'm gonna, this is what I wanted to point out when you were accusing me of inconsistent hermeneutics, mm -hmm. right? Notice now what you have to do to try to reconcile day one and day four. You now have to say, okay, well, on day one and day four, we have the exact same words, but now isn't it possible that they're meant in completely different senses? But there's nothing in the text that tells us they're meant in completely different senses. Only the taking the text uh, as chronological literal days does. Right. So if you take it as a chronological literal day, you have a problem. And the only way to resolve the problem no, you don't. Is, then you then, can... is then to take them in different senses. Yeah. Or else you can import naturalism into it and view it not as historical narrative. That, so, so, this, uh, so that I think is unfair because I'm not, I'm not importing naturalism whatsoever. Right? There, I'm, I'm not making any type of naturalistic assumptions. Whatsoever. I'm saying, but according to what God tells us, the function is on day one and the function is on day four you have a contradiction that arises. And I'm not willing to come across and say, well, let's just radically alter the meaning of the exact same words seven verses apart from each other. Give me a, give me a moment here. I want to give you an example where you do this in the Testament. Give me a second. Oh, it's going to take me a little bit to look this up. Um, uh, I, I believe that you do this, Tyler, in your exegesis of New Testament scriptures, and I'm going to find the example that I want to use for this. But I believe that you uh, commonly, in your exegesis, in order to resolve uh, um, apparent contradictions in scripture, that you recognize that uh, two different texts can use the same literary construct in two different senses. Uh, and, and you do this in other places. So that's why I'm saying that uh, you don't accept the explanation that God is stating it in two different senses. In, in the first sense, he's stating it as simply um, uh, that God is distinguishing light from darkness. In the second sense, God is distinguishing the markers that he has provided for man between day and night. Uh, sure. As we, I mean, experience I... On, as we experience it on earth. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'd love for you, I'd love for you I to find it. Yeah, I can I mean, find I plenty of examples in Scripture where you take literary constructs that are in the same uh, and that you don't pit them together. 
you resolve them by viewing and understanding the different sense in which they're used. For example, I'll just say quick, quickly, this is not an example I was looking for, but I just thought of this one, is that you use the term, the way that James uses the word uh, uh, dikaio or justified, you recognize that James is using it in a different sense than what Paul uses it. Correct. Right. Absolutely correct. Yes, I absolutely do. Do you know what the difference is between these two passages? Who, who wrote James? There are absolutely different authors, but we also do this even who, with the same author. Who wrote Genesis 1? I understand that, but we, you even do this with the same author. And we can within, within the scope of several verses, in the same context, in the same passage, right? So, and, and again, I'm not going to argue that there's no such thing as lexical range, right? And again, this this is actually is a, is a reductio argument, right? I'm saying if I assume a literalistic reading, a diachronic reading of this passage, these problems wash out, right? Notice, notice so far you haven't actually resolved it. You said, well, let's just take them in different senses. No, I did. I, I accept the resolution that it's in different senses. I, I, I'm completely comfortable with that. So, so, what's, so what, in what sense does God separate the, the light from the darkness from in day one, call it good, and then again on day four, re-separate the light from the darkness? How are the senses different? I already told you. The first one is the sense of uh, light and darkness in itself, just light and darkness being different. And the next sense is the distinguishment between day and night as experienced on Earth. I can walk into a room, and I can shine a flashlight in a dark room. I can see the difference between light and dark. That's the first sense. I can go out during the day and see the sun, and that distinguishes it from the night. And so it's used in two different senses. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I even grasp what those different senses are. In in both those senses, you have light so, is different from dark. They're identical senses. No, they're not. The one is day, in comparison to night, as experienced on Earth. And in another in another uh, perspective of an observer, um, I when I'm when I'm on the backside of the moon and I have a flashlight, um, I'm experience the separation of light and darkness in a different sense than what I'm experiencing it on the earth when I'm experiencing the sun and I'm experiencing what we call day. So when God said on day one, let there be light and there was light. God saw that there was light and it was good. God separated the light mm -hmm. from the darkness. Right? This is a separation of yeah. all light from all darkness. Yes. What you're saying, right? God called yeah. the light day and he called the dark darkness night. So on day one, he wasn't differentiating between daytime and nighttime. Yes. He was differentiating between daytime and nighttime. It, in, in the later text, he's doing it from, uh, he's putting the markers in the sky, which distinguish it for us. Remember, he puts them so, in for signs, for seasons, and for, so that's what I'm saying, it's in a different sense. Okay, so, but I mean, I'm trying to get down to brass tacks here, right? Because I, I, I'm conceptually, I'm still, it still seems like a distinction without a difference, right? So, so on day one, you have him separating the day from the light. The okay. light time is, is daytime, and the mm -hmm. darkness is nighttime. And on that I first day, there was morning the and there was evening. So, he didn't... Day yeah. four, so, so, day four, yeah. he then provides a marker mm -hmm. for daytime and nighttime. Yes, that's correct. Right? 
Hey guys, I just wanted to uh, to cut in to ask. We've, we've hit the one hour mark. I want to ask uh, how long you guys want it to go longer. We can go for as long as you guys want to, of course. But I just wanted to check. Yeah, check, check. Uh, I, I'm fine if uh, you've been kind of asking me some questions, uh, which is fine. Uh, I did want to kind of maybe ask one more question. Uh, is that is that fine? Sure. Or? Yeah. Do you mind if we wrap up this and then in a minute and then move on? I'll say one more thing. You can have final say, and then we'll go to your question. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, you guys, cool. and you guys don't have to end or anything. I was just, I was just, it was just a checkpoint type of a thing. I'm not saying that we. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. Right. So, so, so you have you have on day one, light from darkness being separated, light being called daytime, darkness being called nighttime. There was morning, there was uh, evening on on one. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Then on day four, God creates the signs to separate night time from darkness from from nighttime from daytime right the separation has already happened but now they're just marking the separation even though the text says he created them to separate daytime from nighttime and and, yeah, and to separate, separate like yeah. but do the markers separate or did god already separate on day one well god already separated on day one but he actually put the physical uh what emitted the light to distinguish it uh, we actually have an object in the sky that now distinguishes between uh, night and day. I, I said you'd have the final word, so I, you, you've been more than fair on this. Um, you can go to one. The um, a question I, I wanted to ask you was, um, in your article, uh, you pointed out that um, you demonstrate several things in Exodus, in the Exodus narrative. Uh, about how the, the word tenin is used uh, in reference to uh, uh, the uh, snakes, the serpents, snakes. the serpents in Exodus, and also you point out the outstretched strong arm motif that's used repeatedly in reference to the comparative in um, in Egyptian literature in reference to Pharaoh having an outstretched outstretched strong hand and strong arm. And you do that comparison, you demonstrate how the Exodus narrative is polemical. Uh, against uh, the Egyptian view, do you also uh, not view the uh, Exodus uh, story as uh, historical? No, I have no problem with the Exodus story being historical. Okay, um, but again, that that's so, largely going to be due to, to to genre considerations and considerations within the text. Right? So, so in Exodus, we see so, uh, it, it's it's kind of like. Um, oh, okay, it, but that leads me to my follow-up question then. Sure, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, so you say genre distinctions. Okay, so let's now go to Exodus 20. Uh, so so you, you do take Exodus, and so let me ask this, is Exodus 20, is that in the same, uh, is that in the same genre as Genesis 1? Uh, no, it's not in the same genre. Genesis, Genesis 20, is, uh, or Exodus 20 is, is law code. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, what is your explanation for why verse nine is is taken to be taken literally, uh, and verse eleven is not? Is are you saying it's because it's a reflection of what is not literal in Genesis one? No. So, well, you you have a couple of different markers, and I, and actually, we're not going to be able to cover all of this because because this is actually a major point um, in 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 uh, kind of framework circles. So. 
I, I think you and I both agree that Moses wrote the Pentateuch or, you know, largely wrote most of the Pentateuch besides some minor redactional things about his own death and stuff like that. Yeah. That's what I was going to mention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, and we agree that it's written by the same author. Right. So what I, I take it that what, whatever Moses meant in, in Genesis 1, and by the way, this might surprise you and might perplex you at the same time. I think that Moses was using the framework of a week. I have no problem with that. Right? Th those, that's the conceptual skyhooks that I think he's building his narrative around, to borrow from John. I, I have no issue with that, with that being the conceptual hooks to hang the rest of, the, uh, of his, his polemical uh, narrative on in, in Genesis 1. So when he's looking for a paradigm, when, when God is using a paradigm in, in, in the law code for the Sabbath, right, he looks for another sevenfold paradigm. Right? He bases it on the days of creation. Right? So in the same way that, that God worked for six days and then rested on the seven, we're to work six days and rest on the seven. Now, here's the question. Uh, did, what, was, the, was it a perfect analogy? How long did the Israelites rest on day seven? 24 hours. How long did God rest on day seven? He's still resting. Right? There's, there's, there's an analogical relationship between the two sevenfold paradigms. Right? It, it's, it's not, it doesn't map on exactly right. Um, and I have no problem with that. And the sevenfold paradigm is used for things that aren't literal. So this same exact sevenfold paradigm is used for Sabbath years and for Jubilee years. Right? So Sabbath years, they have yeah, seventh year. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. and the Jubilee years, it's every seventh, seven, every seven, seven, seventh year, right? Ninth year, right? So, so this, well the sevenfold paradigm manifests itself across the entire uh, panoply of sabbat sabbatical regulations. Uh, and, and I understand that, Tyler, but where in any of those, like the sabbatical years, um, where did it ever say that, that uh, God created the earth in six years and rested on the, the seventh? He doesn't, but that's exactly the point. It's clearly based on the same paradigm. No, the but, only but time it actually does, makes paradigm the comparison, the only time it actually makes the comparison to the actual creation is when it actually is an, an equal. So it is actually when it is actually six days. Now I know you're going to bring up the seventh day. Yeah, I but, mean you have a major problem with the seventh day. Um, um but, but I don't think I, I just don't find that to be a valid uh, objection because the days continue and we we repeat them. What what God is He rested on the seventh day, but God did not create continue His creative acts, and man do does continue their creative acts on the day following. Uh, in order to function, God does not did not continue. If God would have continued creating with punctuated supernatural events, more matter after day seven, then yes, he would have continued the same motif. He would have created for another six days and then rested again. But God was done with his creative acts, so therefore he did not have to continue the the trend in the way man does. Man has to do that because he has to continue to work. Um, God rested from his creative acts and he did not have to continue them. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a necessary, I, don't, I, I just don't find the objection on the seventh day to, to be a corollary. 
Um, the the one I, I do have one question I, I was going to bring up too, and you did mention in your article, and I just want to ask you if this is your really is your position is that the Jews would have not viewed the Genesis account necessarily as historical, but they would have recognized the political narrative against the Egyptian myths. And they would not have understood uh, the way that uh, we as as uh, modern day, you say, view it through a scientific lens. I don't believe I'm looking at it through a scientific lens. I'm looking at it as, as, uh, through a historical lens, as, as being historical narrative. But that was your argument that you made in your article. I heard you mention that also, I believe, in your opening statement. Is that, is that something that you hold to, that the Jews did not uh, look at this, this as uh, historical, but mainly as political? Yeah, so I think that uh, this 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 trades heavily on the work of uh, people like Bruce Walkey and John Walton, right, in their view of uh, and their work on the ancient Near Eastern worldviews, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the ancient Near Eastern worldviews didn't have what's called a material ontology, right? So they they didn't view things as existing because they had material substance. They viewed things as existing because they had function, right? So something existed because it functioned or when it came to function. Have have you read Second uh, Ezra six twenty eight through fifty nine? I'm sure I've read it. I can't think of it off the top. Okay, um, it is obviously a, it's a it's a work uh, that existed prior to the time of Christ. It would have been written by a Jew, um, and in that passage, if you go ahead and read that text, uh, um, it is sometimes included. If uh, if you look, uh, it's it's often included right after the book of Ezra when you see, uh, and it was included in the Septuagint translation. Six, what? Um, uh, six twenty-eight through fifty-nine. If you read that passage, you can see that the author of this text here was looking at the creation account as uh, as a progression of six days, and he was not looking at it in the way that uh, uh, exclusively in the way that you, that you uh, have um, explained. I mean, uh, I'm trying to look it up, but I'll, I mean, I'll have to take your word for it right now i mean i yeah no, that's second right. ezra six 28 through 59. it's a pretty long passage i'll, I'll i mean I'll have, to, I'll have to look through it um and, and see um but i can tell this is also uh, yeah I, I i mean from from just just look at it. Just kind of, yeah, just kind of glimpsing at it. I'm just say it's. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll definitely, I'll, I'll look at it. and I'll, I'll write you separately from what I, from what I can see. I think um, you're importing your view just from the glancing that I'm having at it. So it says things like, uh, "And I said, O Lord, Thou spakest from the beginning of creation, even the first day, thus, and said us thus, let heaven and the earth be made, and Thy work, uh, Thy word is perfect." Work. Right. Well, I mean, I can talk about what happened on the first day, even though I don't hold to. You a literal party view because that's, well, that's simply the moniker of what the text says. Yeah. He, so, he so I mean, I yeah, I mean, I'll have to look. I'll look through it more. Um, uh, but I but I found I found a lot of times, and, and I'm not saying you're doing this. I'll have to look through. Um, but I found a lot of times, basically, what happens, and this happens on both sides. This happens from older creationists, younger creationists. I mean, everyone uses Augustine as a football to back and forth. Um, they'll they'll kind of read. Because the language is ambu- ambiguous, people do this with the Westminster Confession. Because the language is ambiguous, not ambiguous. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say ambiguous. Because the language is is almost identical to what Genesis one says, they'll say, "Well, whatever." What? Well, clearly they're saying it's a 24-hour view because it's using the same language 
is Genesis 1, which I think is a 24-hour. Right? So, so I'll have to look at the text and say, okay, well, does the text of 2nd Ezra itself say something to the effect of, and this was a 24-hour literal day, you know, obviously it's not going to say it that expressly, but something along those lines, or is it just saying, hey, things happen day one, things happen, I mean, and it's just kind of mimicking the same language that we find in Genesis 1, because then at that point, so that actually brings up a good point. The way that you said that there, I like how you said that. You said uh, it wouldn't say uh, a literal 24-hour day. What would the text actually have to say for you to adopt that, Tyler? I, I'm not, I mean, part of the, part of the problem that, that I have with, with a literal 24-hour day view, and I've said this already, again, it's, I don't have some assumption of naturalistic history, right? I think what we observe is so many uh, poetical literary devices that we don't observe in other narratives. And I think that when we read it through a, a literal 24-hour day view, too many contradictions and problems pop out. And it should cause us at least to look, look and say, is there another option that's available to us for better reading? And then once we start understanding the ancient Near Eastern context, we see the polemics that's happening, right? It all of that kind of goes into place for our exegesis when we're looking at these passages and say, okay, well, what does this mean in the historical context? Their historical, you know, what was his worldview have been that got revealed to him? It would have been intelligible to the original audience, right? It's using the, the normal genre and features, right? When we go through all these types of questions, um, I don't think that our view comes out. So, for example, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Let me switch seats for a second. Right. What do you do with uh, you, you? You read my paper, right? So you know that one of my arguments. It's not simply that there's polemics, right? It's not simply that they're 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 taking a few things and they're kind of they're just kind of twisting it a little bit, like the mighty arm um, or the tenonim, right? There there are lexical par uh, parallels and there are structural parallels. So when you read through the Shabaka stone. It is almost in identical order to Genesis 1. And we know the Shabaka stone predates Genesis 1 by hundreds, if not a thousand years. So, so, so it's not that the Shabaka stone is, is, is mirroring Genesis, right? Genesis follows the exact order. I mean, to the point where you have, you know, a pre-creation condition of a life, lifeless cosmos in a watery deep. Above the water, you have the divine breath or wind hovering. You have the, the word that creates the light. You have a primordial hill emerging from the midst of the water. You have the creation of the sky uh, being raised up over the earth. You have the formation of the heaven and the ocean, the formation of the dry ground, and created to rule the world as the image uh, of the divine. Earth then spouts plants, fish, birds, reptiles, land animals, and then there's the creature of God's statues, cities, food offerings. And so, I mean, then you get into human activity, right? It follows the exact same order, right? Genesis 1 well, mirror. I mean, it, it, so when Genesis 1 is, is polemically dealing with the Shabaka stone, right? It's not just taking random concepts. It seems to be taking the exact order of the creation account of the Shabaka stone and taking that wholesale and saying, okay, let, let's keep the order, but let's just mess this all up and, and fix all of your bad concepts. Yeah, I, I think uh, one thing that you would have where 
I think I differ with you a little bit there is I think you assume that the Genesis narrative uh, came after the Shabaka stone. I, I think that it might have even predated uh, the the flood and may have came across with Noah. I, I think I, I think there's a good possibility. I think uh, Genesis 5.1, in reference to this is the book of the generations of Adam, um, is maybe that Moses is actually recording um, either a previous orally transmitted story or possibly even written uh, that that predated that uh, had you know gone down through uh, the followers of of uh, of Yahweh uh, prior to that so uh, I don't necessarily I think I would revert it around the other way say that the narrative of the Shabaka stone is probably more of an alternative mythical uh, uh, version of the narrative that developed over time uh, that was uh, different than the. the uh, but do you, do you have any? Um, so my question no, is: do you no, have evidence no, no, that's no, no. I, I would, but I would also say that you're just as well assuming that uh, the other order as well. Well, no, I mean, from all the evidence that, that we do have, the Shabaka stone predates it from the dates that we have a competition. Well, but, but see, I, I, I notice I that you're required to invent. Yeah, I believe it's supernatural. Right, but I believe it's supernatural at all. But but believing it's supernatural doesn't mean that I get to invent sources. I, I well, don't no, get to invent a, a pre-Genesis source. So if it's supernatural, it to a different about. date before the flood. I mean, none of that, that. You're inventing all of that to escape a problem. The um, um. Actually, I lost my train of thought. Um. What, what I'm saying is that if it's supernaturally inspired, if my presupposition is that the scripture is supernaturally inspired then God can construct narratives to be polemics against uh, myths before they actually come about, which is why I believe even the, uh, the creation uh, uh, narrative is a polemic against even the myths of naturalism today. Right. I, I mean, just as well, just as well, even though it's not a, it, it doesn't post the, it doesn't post date the, uh, the modern day myth of, uh, of naturalistic creation. So, so this is this is where this is again where I, you know I'm going to press you on inconsistency, because I'm going to say, look, you and I both have the the, the presupposition of, of supernatural, you know, uh, uh, inspiration and inerrancy over the text, right? We both believe in supernatural revelation. That's not like you don't have the corner on it in this conversation where you're the only one that holds that as a presupposition, right? So, but what's going to happen is. I don't think that you would allow that if you were talking to, say, an SDA person, like Justin Wilson, who haunts our group. I don't think you would allow them to say, well, God, you know, God's supernatural. And he could have, fill in the blank, whatever, whatever device they want to invent, because God could have done it. Therefore, that's the solution for them to escape the problem. I don't think you would ever allow them to get it. And yet that's what you're resorting to, to get away from this fact. Get away from what fact? I'm not getting away from the fact that it's a polemic. I agree with it. Right. So, so all, saying, all the evidence we have. I assume that it postdates it. I'm saying that uh, I don't know that you have for that. I say that it could predate it. Okay. But I mean, in order to say that, that Genesis 1 predates the, the Shabaka stone, I mean, you would have to, you'd have to colossally overturn Pretty much everything about. Uh, 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 do, do, you about believe, do you believe that the um, that the New Testament documents predate most of the secular dating of those documents? I do, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
but, but again, so this is, this is where, I mean, okay. um, I, I, hate, I hate to sound like flowers, but, but attaching secular to something is just a boogeyman, right? There's, there's, no, there's no secular version that I'm aware of, of dating of the Shabaka stone. Right? You, can't, you can't just label a disagreeing. I'm not arguing with the date of the Shabaka stone. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just dialoguing with you on your assumption that this text has to, I'm not saying it doesn't. It very well could have been Moses that, that, that I said uh, that was the, the actual original author and there was nothing that he was either copying uh, from or anything that predated him. That, that could be. I'm just saying that you're assuming that it only comes afterwards and I'm saying that eliminate well, that. That's, where, that's all of our extant evidence. Right, so, so the disagreement, so for example, the disagreement on the dating of the Gospels of the New Testament document, for example, is precisely a disagreement over the evidence and how to interpret the evidence. That's exactly the issue between conservatives and, and, and critical scholars, right? There's no such agreement that I'm aware of, the and dating Tyler, of the Shabaka Stone a, and the composition of Genesis 1. And, and so, I don't have a problem so with all dating. Our evidence for the Shabaka Stone is that it predates the composition of Genesis. And that has no bearing right. on any it, of the it, arguments. It, I don't. It, it to me, it's 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 really irrelevant either way. I'm just saying that I think it could possibly predate, but it's really irrelevant to uh, any of the arguments that I've even made. That okay, Moses is the uh, first author uh, of it, and it's and there are polemical responses to the Shabaka Stone very well. I, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just saying that. Um, it can also be literal history and at the same time be a polemic against that. And once again, I'll, I'll point out uh, that you have not demonstrated how the actual six-day motif is a polemic. Now, I know that you say it's a framework, but you have not demonstrated yeah, I'm not how that's actually a polemic. I wouldn't need to because I'm not claiming that the six-day framework is a polemic. In the same way that I don't need to claim, so we're both millennialists. I don't know if you hold to a recapitulatory view of Revelation. I, I can think that large motifs and issues within Revelation are polemical against Caesar and Nero without needing to say that the, the recapitulatory story structure of the seven bowls, seven trumpets, and seven seals are themselves de facto polemics in their structure. I don't need to claim that. It's not the claim. And, so, so, and I've already told you, I think, that, I think that a seven day week is the framework that Moses is going with. I'm fine with that. In the same way that I think trumpets and seals are the framework that John uses for his recapitulation. Fine with both of those. But that doesn't entail a, a diachronic, literal view of the account. It doesn't entail for that in, in, in any type of literary framework. We don't need that. And, 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 by, and we hold the same thing when it comes to the gospel. So, I mean, do you think that the gospels are written in chronological order? Uh, no, right. but but in, in saying that they're not written in chronological order, right, does that mean that they're not not historical? I'm not sure even what your argument is there, because the the gospels are not even uh, represented between each other as chronological. No, I'm not, I'm not saying you know Matthew Mark in I'm saying like is Luke is Luke writing a chronological account of the life of Jesus? Is he putting everything in exact order? That happened in history. I don't think he necessarily claims that. It's not there. Um, the, that that claim's not even uh, in the in the text. Um, I mean, some it, of the events are obviously chronological, but not all of the you know the 
maybe the order of uh, some of the parables and things like that um, in which they were delivered maybe in Matthew are, are, are different in, in Luke, but I don't think that that's uh, even a claim made in the text itself that they're chronological. It's, it's not, there's no place that it says that this was the first parable that Jesus gave and this was the second, and then that's contradicted in one of the other Gospels. No, but it's it's definitely pre- I mean it's presented as a starting point to an ending point within the life of Jesus. I, I mean, I, it, until we start getting into into uh, modern the times, those are preceded by ordinal numbers. Okay, so let, let's talk about this because you brought this up in your article too. So, you, so you use the common the common objection that yom plus an ordinal number always means a twenty four hour day. You know that's just you know that's just factually false, right? Where in the Old Testament does it say that? Does it have Deuteronomy ten ten? Deuteronomy ten ten. All right. There's there's actually numerous examples. Cardinal okay. and cardinal. Um. So you're saying first time is the word yom? First time it is yom plus normal. I'll have to look into that. It's it's uh I'll have to look at the 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 Hebrew on this. I mean we can bring up the Hebrew. <laughs> Are you pulling it up, Tyler? Or just uh, I am, but if, if if you want to pull it up, oh no, 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 I'm, I'm. Well, you know, I, I was just curious. <laughs> it was yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't. Yeah, it's it's I mean, in the context of this verse, it's obviously using it as, I might say, stayed on the mountain as in the first time, uh, as in the first day, uh, 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, it doesn't seem ambiguous to me from the context. So, so, harasonim kai yamim, yom, that's the ordinal number. So... We, we have we have examples where this clearly doesn't mean this this clearly doesn't mean a 24-hour day. It's it's a reference to a period of 40 days, actually. I'm not even looking at the Hebrew here. And if if you look at the context of this, and then in the way it is in Genesis one, there is no comparison. I mean, you can you can try to make a linguistic comparison, but there isn't one. The context it uh, is is very it very clearly lays out what it means. Right, but but the point is, is that 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 you're trying to say the grammatical rule is that when yom plus an ordinal number appears, it it must mean a 24-hour literal day. And I'm saying that this is one example that it's not. We can go to other ones if you'd like. Yeah, and that's 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 fine. I mean, I, if that's the case, I need to do some more research into that. If that's the case, and that is a statement that I actually have to qualify or retract. Yeah. So I mean, you have Zechariah 14:7 to 9. It appears. Appears, Isaiah 9 14 it appears, Isaiah 6 2 it appears, Yom plus ordinal or cardinal numbers numerous times doesn't mean a literal 24 day. It's just it's just not it's just not an accurate rule. Neither is the argument, which is very common, 
that yom plus morning and evening always means a 24 hour yom plus morning and evening is basically a grammatical half axlagomena of genesis one there, there's nothing to compare it to so you can't say it's a rule that controls hebrew when it's only found in the text in question so 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 there the, these these types of uh, of hebrew rules get get thrown out but they're, they're just not they're just not factually the case um, when it comes to the text um, so so some of the some of the other questions that i that i would have for you it's it's uh it's not 30 are you still i know it's, it's super late for you man i appreciate you staying up is so good it's, to, it's 12 30 why don't we have the rest of the um the council just jump in and we'll have a little bit of conversation but yeah i do need to uh i need to get moving it's an hour and so Hey, I, and by the way, I mean, I, re I really appreciate you coming on. I know it was late for you, and it was, it was hard to get a time together, so I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. All right, and uh, with that, we can, if you guys are all right with it, I know some of the people in uh, on the panel had questions, if you guys are all right with that. And we can go, um, for Jason's sake, we could go, is 15 minutes all right, or would you? Yeah, let's, let's, do 10, let's do 10 minutes or so, and then I do need to. It's, okay. Uh, it's the next day for me. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I know that one way. If he's still here, had a question. Okay. Still here one way. Oh, he might have. Okay. Well, he might be. <laughs> he he might have left since, but he he was asking questions on the side chat, um, and I think it was for Tyler. I go back and. Find it if in the meantime, if anybody else has, does anybody else on the panel have a question for Tyler or Jason? Okay, I, well, I can find his. Uh, I, I think his question, and one way, and I were kind of talking about this, but we were asking about if. Um, we're talking about basically Tyler's position. Or I think a lot of the thrust, with, uh, thrust of Tyler's uh, statements in his argument are trying to avoid univicism in Scripture, which basically is that um, when the way that we map uh, the events in Genesis are not like a one-for-one -one type of a thing, where whereas we would map like. Um, uh, or, or state something like, you know, I sat on the couch and by language we can say, okay, well, that meant that, that meant that. Um, we can one-to-one -one map it with language, but Genesis is, is rather than, okay, it can only have this one meaning, it's, it's analogical. And that's, I think that's a key hermeneutical difference. I think that a lot of people, um, I've, I've heard, especially a lot of people in the reform camp, uh, get upset about Though I don't think they've fully considered it, but I, if that makes sense, Tyler, that's kind of what we were what we were speaking of, and what I think he his question was concerning. I, I'm not sure what his, what his question oh. if, if I if if I'm intentionally avoiding univism. No, no. If you're if you're you're saying that that's a necessary part of it should be a necessary part of the Christian hermeneutic, and in some sense you're applying it here, like the just the analogical understanding of certain things, just like how. God uses, and this is just an analogy, but God uses uh, accommodated language for us. 
Right. Yeah, I think um, so. That so. Um, I agree with one way in the rejection of univism. Univism, as far as I understand it, and, and I could just have this backwards. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, that yeah. was my that was a slip. Yeah, rejection of it. I'm sorry. That's I yeah. said that, and then I, I yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think that we observe this all throughout the scriptures, right? So the example um, that, that Jason brought up from the paper is, you know, the mix um, where it talks about God having a strong arm. Um, that, that actually was a statement that was about Pharaoh, right? And it represented his ability to protect Ma'at, which is basically a similar concept of shalom or kind of all encompassing peace and harmony throughout the land. Um, but I don't think that it, it's, it, I don't think it's merely kind of crass symbolism Right, uh, I, I, where where the the what's said um, is is almost allegorical of something completely different, right? But uh, but at the same time, I don't think it's a literal use of the term where where it maps on directly in the same way that a literal statement like "I sat on the couch" would be. So I, I do agree with one way. Um, I largely think language is is uh, uh, much more multivocal. Um, than than most people will give it credit for, and I think that um, that sometimes that will affect uh, our hermeneutic. Um, and I, and I think basically, by the way, I, I sometimes wish that as moderns we would return <laughs> to a, a little bit more of an ancient way of speaking and thinking. I, I, I find a lot of times when I read through the Bible, um, the 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 flexibility and the freedom within um, the language. Um, is actually much more rich and, and gets across a, a, a much deeper, more complex type of meaning um, than often we're able to do with with a technical language like English. But you know, you got to do a lot with with sixty thousand words in your entire lexology, where we have like, I, don't know, I think it's like up to like eight million or something like that different words. So, okay, I think. Uh, one ways back, I know I probably only stated like part or a small part of what he wanted to say, but if one way, if you wanted to ask your question, and then I know Jimmy has a question, and then uh, that probably would, would take up both of those, would probably take up most of our time, if not all. But if let me see, I think you have to unmute them. Oh. I got one way. Can you? Yeah, he's on, he's not muted. From what I can see here. All right, is Jimmy there? Let's move on to Jimmy. Okay. Yeah, Jimmy's here. Yeah, I'm here. So my, my question, my question is for uh, Jason. Actually, mm -hmm. uh, this is this is. Uh, I'm. I apologize for the. Uh, unclearness of this I'll, tr I'll try to put it as with as much clarity as i can okay um so i guess my question is do you think that it's possible given that tyler's view is true and um a literary framework and polemic interpretation of the text is accurate do you think that it's possible given that view for god to have created the universe in such a way that that it would have looked exactly like the seven 24-hour periods that a young Earth creationist um, thinks it looks like? And if so, 
Do you think that that is a strength of Tyler's perspective that young earth creationists cannot benefit from, a sort of abductive default that he can appeal to? Okay, right, right. Okay, I, I'm uh, I'm lacking sleep here, so maybe that's the reason why I didn't quite catch. Let me let me that. see if I can. Let me but, see if I can. And I think let me let me make sure I'm understanding. So you're you're saying yeah, that that if God providentially created in a normative way, uh, and it appears somehow that it was created uh, in seven literal. I'm I'm not sure I'm following you. Could somebody else either? Summarize it. Or yeah, so I think I think what what Jimmy is trying to say is, um, if we if we grant that Tyler's uh, Tyler's view is true, mm -hmm. right? Um, could God have created the uh, the Earth as a young Earth creationist believes, given Tyler's understanding? And and if so, uh, I don't know that we would have any warrant for it. Now the okay, so the answer to that, yes, but we couldn't justify that claim if we okay. weren't if we if we if we took Tyler's position as true. If we took Tyler's position as true, could it be true that God did create it and still in six days? Yes, but we couldn't justify or warrant that claim. Can I can I ask a follow up question for that? Mm -hmm. Um, because that, that actually is, like I said, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic about the view because I don't think that Genesis one teaches how old the earth is. I think that that's something that we would actually learn from science and I just haven't studied the science. Right. So, so when, when I talk to someone who's young earth creationist and I talk to someone who's evolutionist, uh, well, I shouldn't even say evolutionist cause I've, I've had problems with evolution philosophically. Someone who's a naturalist, let's say, or an old earth creationist, pitting their own different, um, you know, scientific evidences against each other. It's just not a realm that I'm familiar enough with to adjudicate, and I just don't have the time or energy to study it. Honestly. Um, you, this would be a question for you uh, philosophically, Tyler. Do you believe that someone can assess the age of the Earth scientifically without a worldview? by which to assess historical events. Um, in, in other words, are, are there presuppositions that come into bear assessing that particular question? Or do you think that is presuppositionally neutral? I don't think anything is presuppositionally neutral. Okay. So However, does, the, does the, the person doing a scientific assessment of the age of the earth, does he have presuppositions that are um, that let's say uh, let's say he's not a Christian. He doesn't he doesn't presuppose biblical supernaturalism. Does his presupposition affect his assessment of that scientific historical question? It may or it may not. I don't. I mean, I would need a, I would need a specific individual, and I would need a specific line of evidence because because you know I I think our our presuppositions affect how we do uh, chemistry and how we do um, what type of science does, how to create computers, uh, engineering or mechanics. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, one, of, one, of my, one of my hesitations in even getting into this and getting involved 
seems to only come up around three or four different branches of science where the worldview seems to be a controlling issue. Right? Young Earth creationists don't ever kind of accuse engineers of being secular scientists um, or say that their or their worldview, their presuppositions undermine science. So, well, so can I clarify that as a young earth creationist? Can I clarify that quickly? Because you, you made it, you made a claim. So I want to, I want to clarify that as a young earth creationist. So yeah, the, yeah, the, re, the reason that we uh, would challenge uh, things differently now, even a uh, an engineer who's in, who's engaging empirical science, observable science, um, uh, I would still challenge him on his presuppositions. I would challenge him for him to justify his belief in uni the uniformity of nature. But when it comes to uh, anyone engaging in historical science and uh, with uh, us trying to assess what happened in the past, um, the worldview that you have uh, is going to uh, have a great bearing upon the conclusions that you come to. If uh, and this is a question that I would even, and I've asked uh, uh, Theus and Theus this question, um, but I could even ask you this question, Tyler. Um, is is it possible for a god, and I say a god, I'm not saying uh, the god of the Bible for a specific reason. Is it possible for a god to have created the world? Um, uh, 10 days ago and implanted all the memories that you think you have prior to that in your mind. Yeah, and, so la basically last Thursdayism. Yes, okay. So yeah. is, that, is that possible? And if you know that that's not true, why do you know that that's not true? Right, so, so this is this, basically, it's a question of solipsism. Yeah. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so I'm going to say, well, no. As a Christian, I'm going to say, no, that's not possible because that would mean that the the that the one you know uh, standard foundation for for logic is dishonest. Um. So, so I'm going to say, no, I don't think that's possible. Now. Yeah. Absolutely. But you are you you are appealing to biblical revelation because uh, because um, uh, who cares if the uh, uh, if the supernatural creator of the universe uh, wants to be dishonest or not, I mean, I, why why do you presuppose that uh, that is a necessity? Uh, you presuppose that because you presuppose biblical category, right? Because that is the, that's the necessary precondition for for rationality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in the same way, uh, when the when the naturalist says that, well, I believe the universe is 13.6 billion years old and not Thursdayism, last Thursdayism. Um, he is also, at the, in the same way as the guy that's embracing last Thursdayism, he is rejecting God's revelation, doing it in the same way. And so he has a worldview, he has a presupposition, which is dictating his understanding of the past. And so in the same way that the Christian objects to last Thursdayism, he should also object to uh, views uh, that uh, have a historical view of the past, which is contrary to Scripture.
Except so that, so let me say one thing because I haven't actually gotten my my follow up question from <laughs> from Jimmy. Um, let me say one thing really quick. So my my major difference with you on that is I don't think that one's interpretation of Genesis one same uh, footing as the presuppositional grounding of the inerrancy of scripture as a whole. I, I, I don't think we can, I don't think we can make our pet interpretation uh, on the same level as, as presuppositional necessity. So it, it might be the case that, uh, because right, right there, what you're doing is you're basically begging the question of your interpretation of Genesis one and saying, well, if they're disagreeing with that, then they're disagreeing with, with inspired scripture. It, it's the same way with you with any other fundamental doctrine then as well that you hold to. Uh, You're just begging the question. But I don't hold the interpretation of Genesis 1 as a foundation. I hold, I hold, no, I don't I hold creation and God as creator I, I don't as either. a foundational doctrine. I, I don't either, but it's, we're still here to debate it. And so, no, I agree. Uh, and, and so in the same way that you uh, would, everything that's, uh, of course, it's begging the question. It's, it's your ultimate authority. Uh, and, and then we need to have the discussion on who has the most consistent hermeneutic in examining Except that the difference is ultimate authority. Except so the difference is your interpretation of Genesis one is not the same thing as your ultimate authority. That's the equivocation that's happening. So you're so you're saying that they're denying the ultimate authority by denying Genesis, Genesis one because then that's denying the scripture. But what you're doing right there is you're smuggling in the assumption that your interpretation of Genesis one is on par with the presuppositional nature of the. Well, that's why we're here to debate. Yeah, Taylor. I agree with that. I'm not arguing that's why. I'm saying that's why we're here to debate hermeneutics and consistency. So, so my my follow up question because th th this okay. actually uh, uh, that was my, my question. I'm curious because um, one of the things that that I that I've said our time is one per, you know a person could hold my view on Genesis one and still be a Christian and hold to young Earth creationism based on the science because and, and and what I found so interesting is you said you wouldn't have the warrant to believe in young Earth creation. But at the same time, as a young earth creationist, and I've heard your show, you spend far more time on the actual evidence of science that the age of the earth and creation is young than you do on the text itself. So I'm curious. It, so it, if, if by some recourse I could, I could show you, I could prove to you that Genesis 1, that my view was correct, right? By, let, let's, just, let's just call it divine miracle. Um, that, that, that Genesis, my view of Genesis 1 as a polemical literary framework. As a as a synchronic presentation of creation, um, could you then not also believe at the exact same time that the Earth was young, precisely because of all the scientific evidence that you argue for on your podcast? No, I don't think you would really, because once again, I don't think anyone can interpret history without a uh, without. A, now there are limiting factors um, that I, I believe, but you also need to have a worldview that can make sense. Uh, so you have to uh, still, you know, assume scripture. Um, I don't think that you have a warrant for six-day creation um, and uh, the age of the earth that that I, you know, that I hold to. We we would see things possibly scientifically that we would say would limit that, but we also do have things. But the point is, obviously, you misunderstood the scientific uh, things that I brought up in my podcast was that I was using that and, and why you noticed the three-part series that I did on creation science and, and young earth creationism is I started with the biblical text. because And the reason I did that is because that has to be the grounding and the foundation to it. 
there are scientific evidences that confirm that. But you have to have a worldview in order to be able to look at historical sciences. And if you don't have a worldview in order to, uh, to provide the grounding for looking at any science, if you don't have one that's able to justify science in the first place, then, then you can't look at history properly. And so what I'm saying is that when you look at, uh, let's take the radiometric dating methods and things like that, which do give long ages, uh, it is consistent with naturalism. So if a person who assumes naturalism, if he looks at uh, potassium argon dating or those dating methods are consistent with their presupposition of naturalism. There's no inconsistency there. And it does come out to a long age, but you have to presuppose philosophical naturalism in order to make it work. Um, and I'm just saying philosophical naturalism does not provide the foundation and basis for ethics, um, uh, uniformity of nature, um, absolutes, transcend, uh, transcendentals, and so forth. I, I, I 100% amen agree. That's why I'm a Christian theist, not a naturalist. That's not why, but... Perks. Okay. I know, Jason. You're, uh, I, have, yeah. I do have to get going, guys. But um, um, I'll, I'll listen hey, in. Can you can and... you answer? Can you take one more question from someone who's been at, waiting for a while? <laughs> okay. Real fast. All right. I won't ask any follow-ups. I promise. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Grimoire. Oh, oh man! I got so excited to tell the gospel that I no longer remember my question. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, does either of y'all's interpretation change any major or any doctrine, like is or any major doctrine, I should say, any like core doctrine around Jesus and and God? Does any does yeah, is interpreting it, it either way change anything like that? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think it has uh, uh, an impact, in particular, upon, um, uh, for example, if you hold to um, that death pre-existed Adam, I think that's a huge theological problem. Um, I think that if you hold that uh, natural disasters and things of that nature predate the fall, um, th you have a problem. You have God declaring what is good in the garden um, as, uh, as being natural disasters and death, which means to me, I don't know how much that holds a promise to the Christian who, ex who expects a new heaven and new earth that is good, um, that, uh, that they'll still experience, uh, maybe not, not personal death, but at least death in the animal kingdom and things like that. And, uh, still natural disasters, uh, at least to some level uh, in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, I, I think it has theological implications, uh, with having death preceding the actual, uh, fall. I think it came as a result for all, and this is where Tyler's going to probably disagree with me, but it's kind of interesting that he would disagree with me, considering that he's not an old earth creationist, but um, that uh, that death preceded the fall. I have a big theological okay. issue with that. Okay. Ty Tyler, I'll have Tyler follow up on that since I've been... Yeah, because it's kind of, it's a short question, you know. Yeah, um, I, I actually agree with Jason. I think... Um, uh, the, the different views do have um, some minor implications on some, some other views. 
Um, and there may be, depending on how you hold like mine, um, there may be an impact on your view of death before the um, however, I don't think that the, the minimal way that I hold a view there is. Um, someone may commit their sel themselves to different, um, a different kind of conjunction of views uh, of how Genesis 1 and the early parts of Genesis 2 relate to Genesis 3 um, in such a way that that does create a problem for them. Um, I, I, don't, I don't actually think it does, um, largely, again, because I'm... I'm I, I don't think the text is telling us about the age of the earth. So I, I, I'm absolutely happy to, to say that, uh, that, that creation might be 10,000 years. And, and thus there's no problem of death. You know, however, I do think that there are ways to resolve like death before the natural death all, as opposed to punitive death before. And there are, there are other answers given and there are other possibilities, uh, given and i would hope that that jason would call for some of those especially considering um the way that that he said well you know if if our, if our view comes up with this tension then we're gonna then we're gonna look for ulterior meanings between texts um so you know i i i would hope he would allow them to do that i don't think however the way that i hold the view it causes that problem i i don't hold the death before that. got it okay okay sweet okay Appreciate you guys having me on. Hey, Jason, I appreciate it, man. Thank I you, appreciate Jason. it. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, it was a good, uh, good cordial discussion, and it's uh, that's how we hope that these things are are glorifying to the Lord and uh, edifying to His church. So, you're, we can end it. You're a you're a you're a dirty heretic. We could, yeah, we could, cha we could change. <laughs> well, yeah, that I would, real quick. I, it's I, never I too would, late. I just yeah. Save that all for the show. <laughs> I'll say that later when I just do my own. <laughs> no, it's it's been it's been really good. Really. It's been good. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Yeah. Good night. God bless. God bless. Okay. And Grimware, uh, we'll give the gospel uh, before we close. Okay. Um, in Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 15, or no, we'll do 11 through 14. It says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The priests in the Old Testament stood every day offering Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But Jesus being sent by the Father to lay his life down so that his, his one sacrifice is enough to cover sins for all time. Which means that when he says it is finished, he means that. And there's nothing we can add but bad works. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And it is only faith in what Jesus did on the cross, that he was raised from the dead, that he died for our sins, might we be saved through his blood, which is a sacrifice for all time. Amen. All right. And thank you to those who listened live today. Uh, this has been the council. And if you'd like to hear more of uh, the material 
that you've heard here, you can go to freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Uh, I believe, is that right, Tyler? I think I, Brian got it right before. Uh, that, is, that is right. And um, the five, five of the most recent episodes are directly related to this. Yes, yes. So Tyler's been a lot of um, work and done a lot of uh, research on this topic and, and has um, resources there. And you can also visit at the BiblePumpingWing.com. You can visit Jason Mullet's podcast uh, there. And which is Logical Belief Ministries. And with that, that uh, oh, and you can also visit uh, the council and our podcast, uh, which if you, if you do a search for uh, the council on Facebook, it's a growing group. And uh, if you would like to, you can join and we can share resources with you there. And with that, we say, God bless. Good night. And uh, may God bless your uh, taking the gospel to the world. I hold to yeah. uh, a literary, are you aware of, uh, aware of literary framework? Genesis one. Um, so, the sense that, like, so effectively a literary framework view, view that um, Genesis, uh, the days one through three, um, are the creation of uh, uh, creation kingdoms or spheres, and days uh, four through six are the creation of the kings that that are sovereignly placed to administer and rule over those days. Um, and so there's this literary structure that happens in, in uh, the development of the passage, pointing towards and leading towards God as the ultimate sovereign, uh, under which all of these creature kings uh, administer uh, their rule. Right, so those those are the theological points, um, okay. where where it, it starts to change, and why I was saying, well, someone could be a young Earth creationist for you know scientific views, um, is that typically along with this, um, and I hold to a polemical view. That's kind of most people will actually readily agree to the polemical, um, whether or not they take any view of Genesis one, um, but the, the 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 takeaway basically is that. Due to some of the contra contradictions and conflicts that arise, if you read Genesis 1 from a diachronic or a chronological a literal day view, um, or a, an older view where these are just long periods of time, it doesn't matter actually the time of the days, it, it matters the, the order of the days that causes the problems, um, that this is actually just a literary representation of creation to, to demonstrate theological points um, that are that are actually vital throughout the rest of not only the Pentateuch but the rest of the scriptures it functions as a, a literary um, uh, synchronic less than literal account of the real historical creation um, in the same way I would say but in a different genre than say um, revelation represents, um, real actual history, but it does so in a very stylized literary um, manner. That doesn't mean it's non-history. It just means that the the exact imagery doesn't map on in a one-to-one -one way to what's happening in history. And, and it's not done necessarily chronologically because there's there's recapitulation that happens throughout the book of Revelation, at least on my view. Yeah.
no, I, yeah, I think we've talked about your view on revelation before, but, um, so, so basically you, you just don't, you don't take it as a six literal days. What are your pro? What's the problem? I was gonna say, what are your problems? What is your problem, man? <laughs> That's not what I want to say. Um, so, what's the problem with the um, chronological order? If I were to ask? like, so I, I I really only delved into to one of them, which is the the conflicts that arise, and there's and there's a couple of them um, between day one and day four, and the separation of the light from the darkness, and the creation of the luminary. Listen back to the episode for that one. I don't want to have everyone sit through that. Got it. Um, there, there's, there's other problems that arise from it. Um, so Meredith Klein makes a big deal um, about the existence of normal providence in God's own presentation of his creation. So in Genesis 2, um, in the second creation account, which is really just kind of... Um, uh, a, a starting over and, and retelling from a different angle of the creation yeah. account. Yeah. Genesis 2, you have the statement where it says, uh, no shrub of the, field of the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground. Right? So mm-hmm. but what God is saying is that in, even, even though, and, th- and we didn't really get into this with Jason, although it would have been, it would have been helpful, God himself is saying, even though that there are some special acts of creation, I still order creation to work under this kind of normal providence, these, these, normal, um, these normal creative processes that I use, the hydronic cycle. It takes rain sure. and water to make plants grow. That's just how yeah. God has ordered creation. And he says that in Genesis 2, um, saying basically there, there's been no plant of the field because it hasn't rained yet. And man hasn't been created. Well, that kind of strains at incredulity, right? If if plants were made on made on day five, or day sorry day three, um, and these mean twenty four hour days, does that mean that that like <laughs> no plants can survive without water or man to till them for days? For how many days are you for like three that? days? Because because man's created on the sixth day, mm. right? So so. So is there really a problem with all the fauna, all the trees and shrubs and plants not surviving for three days without rain and without man to cultivate it? Um, so so you, have, you have that problem because God says, I, I'm working under normal providence. Um, and then he plants, um, then, then he creates man, plants the garden, and then places the man in the garden, right? So you have man actually being created before the plant life is, is created in Genesis 2, right? So in Genesis 2, you have man before the fauna. In Genesis 1, you have fauna before man, right? So you have, you have if you hold them both, if you read them both in a chronological order, the, the, in, in the literal, you know, diachronic approach that that a, that a twenty-four hour day view does, you start getting these contradictions even in the chronology of the events. Um, that that that's a I've problem. I've heard of that before, but I didn't consider it. I didn't consider it an actual issue, and I don't remember um, the reason why I don't consider it an issue because um, I haven't gone over Genesis with people in a while. Um. I've heard that there are seemingly or there are seeming contradictions, but not like actual. Yeah, and and this is where uh, you know 
I, you know, I think Jason did a great job articulating what is what are kind of the normal um, literal day view answers. Right? My problem with them is I, I just don't find them convincing because in one sense, he's going to look at me and he's going to say, look, you're being inconsistent, right? Because you interpret Genesis 1 differently than you would interpret a different passage in a completely different genre and a completely different place. I'm going to come to him and I'm going to say, what you're required to do is you're actually required to interpret the same words and the same and, and the same events in different ways within the same passage um, in, a, in a rather ad hoc manner in order to escape some of these conflicts. So he might be able to come up with an answer, but it, to me, it comes across as very ad hoc. Right? And I don't want to go into specifically what his answer would be and what my answer would be and why it fails and all that kind of stuff, because he's not here to defend himself. But, but I'm, I'm just saying, kind of yeah. generally in principle, that that's typically how I feel when I, or not, that's how I feel. Um, that's typically what I think when I hear the responses. It's just that I, I, I just don't find them compelling and, yeah. and, and they sound very ad hoc to me. And that, that might be just like due to me and my like, I, I used to be uh, you know, a really staunch atheist and then a kind of even more staunch agnostic and uh, found myself like really doubting Genesis 1 and like studied the science for it, hated it, hated the science for it. Like, I, it's just not my field at all. I have more ph philosophical in mind than I do scientific. And so instead I just say like, yeah, you know, Genesis 1, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read it this way and I'm just going to go with like, just we can trust that that, you know, whatever happens, happens. Um, what is it? Pan theology? I'm just gonna let it pan out. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's that's pan. my feel on Genesis one. Well, and you know, and, and to be fair, let me let me also say something about the Earth camp, right? Because because one of the things that I say pretty regularly is I'm just an agnostic. About, I I don't know the age of the Earth, and I don't think that that's the point of Genesis one, and I don't find either of their hermeneutics compelling. So an old earth creationist is going to come to Genesis 1, and I think they're going to do, I, I actually think the old earth creationist does worse to the text than the young earth creationist does. Because the old earth creationist is going to come along, they're going to say, oh, well, in order to make uh, my view of the cosmology work, right? So, so in that sense, I agree with young earth creationists that old earth creationists are just twisting the, the scriptures to get their old earth creationism out of the text. I actually yeah. agree with them on that. Because they're going to come along and they're going to say, okay, I need to find billions of years. Right? Yeah. Every time they do this. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm going to put in like, you know, I'm going to put in a bunch of years between uh, Genesis 1 and 2, right? which we would never allow in any of the other text. <laughs> right? I, I could just go into the Gospels and just like sprinkle in, oh, that was three years there. I, I just couldn't do that as a way to solve a problem. No, not, neither could I. But they, I tried. But they also then come along and they say, with, without, without real reasoning, they come along and they say, okay, well, well yom can mean a long period of time, right? Mm -hmm. this, this is where I think um, Jason was having a hard time understanding is that, and I, and I tried to say it a couple of times, I think Moses is using a regular week as a paradigm, as, as, as structure to hang his, his account on. So I don't actually disagree with him that probably what's being represented is a twenty it is a twenty four hour day, right? My my issue is with the chronological approach to the entire passage being in that specific order, right? So I think it's a, it's a synchronic passage where 
days one and four are likely the same event and days two and, and five are likely the same event. And I don't think once you, once you get into that, I don't think you start, um, I, I don't think, I, I think you're quickly getting out of cosmology <laughs> to put it that way. Whereas the older sure. creationist is going to come along and they're going to say, okay, well, each yom is like, you know, a billion years, whatever, yeah, I mean, whatever exactly. million years or whatever, whatever, whatever type of, Whatever science wants to tell us, we'll, we'll just say that that's how many years. We'll divide it by six or seven, and we'll say that's what it is. But notice, notice you still have the same chronological problems. So you still have, you didn't listen to the first part, so, but you, you, so you still have the problem of light existing for, before the luminous. Um, you still have the separation of the lightness and the and dark happening uh, two times, even after God has said it is good. You still have God saying, I'm going to create the sun and the stars in order for the express purpose of marking out day and night, even though there's been already been day and night for three right? So, so, so just expanding the length of what a yom is doesn't actually resolve the chronological issues that are in the passages in the same way that a literary framework does. Hmm. I'll go over it eventually. I'm kind of on a lot of other studies. No, I, I've got, so I just got, um, I just finally got Wayne Grudem's book, Aqua Doge Senate, and I got it, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and I'm sure creationism is in here. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it's in there. So I'll well, get to it you when know, I read it. In the, and, and to be fair, I'm a creationist. Yeah. I'm, I hold that God is the, the one creator over all things. I think I think the creation account is an account of creation. I just think it's a highly stylized literary synchronic account. But I think it maps onto an actual event of creation where God actually is in an act of special creation, creating the universe and the cosmos and, and ordering it and giving it function and forming it. Um, sure. We didn't really get into it in this one, but for those who read the paper, there's 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 some large uh, theology that's happening in the the section on tohu vabohu, right on the four and void that that's used later on when when the land is desolate during the exile when when god takes all the people out and the land becomes a barren wasteland um, god needs to then reform it and refashion it and make it habitable again before he can bring the people back in it's an act of recreation when he brings them back out of exile but we're not going to say oh well that means that God was actually literally creating out of nothing. And um, so there, there's a, there's a bunch of other things that we just obviously didn't have time or space to cover. Yeah. No, I bet. Reading Bonson, to, so Bonson gives a critique of, of mine, and he says, I don't find the idea of appearance of age as anything morally objectionable. Neither do I. So um, I tried to clear up that it's not the appearance of age. It's the actual appearance of a history that didn't exist. That's the problem. I, I have no problem with mature creation or Adam being created as an adult. Um, but I, what I have would be, um, for example, the example I gave is, you know, scars on the back from a bear attack that Adam actually never encountered. That to me would be really, um, there might be ways around it. I don't know, but, but it seems like it would lead to at least an ethical dilemma. Right? There may be a way to resolve it. There might be some type of 
ethical dilemma. So, so I had a question for you, Tyler. Yeah. Um, so uh, I know you said you're agnostic as to like the age, like the don't, I guess coming into this discussion, um, I thought something that was really enlightening was, uh, how you presented that it's, it's not about the age. I think I always kind of got caught up in that, you know, this discussion is about the age. Um, but you know, saying that you're agnostic to that, um, do you think that both a young earth and an old earth could gel with the scriptures, like either one, if it turns out to be either way? Um, so I, I, or you just don't know. I lean younger. I honestly lean young earth, but only by a margin. Uh, I mean, it'd be like 51 to 49 <laughs> um, percent. Um, and it's largely because the exact issue that, that Jason brought up, which is death before the. Um, You're the Swiss of the uh, age of earth people. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that the text really tells us. Um, and in, in one sense, old earth could jive because Genesis one isn't telling us the age of the earth. So if science tells us you know, if all the scientific evidence tells us that the earth is old, uh, the universe is old. Great. Um, but at that point, we would really have to find a solution for death before. Um, but I mean, we, we, we've had to, we, we've had to do issues like this before. I mentioned in my opening statement, um, you know, with Galileo and Copernicus, um, the, the literalist, the literalist view basically would look to the text and they would say, look, the normal reading of the passage is that the sun is the one that's moving. Um, you know, you, 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 you can't just come along and say, well, there's evidence from science and therefore we need to change our interpretation of scripture. That's not allowed. Um, and yet here we are in the 21st century, and I think pretty much every single one of us here would be a heliocentrist. None of us hold that the earth is a flat disk. None of us hold that there's, you know, a solid dome firmament above. I mean, there, there are clear examples where we have altered um, what we think the clear meaning of the text is. Right? And this is why when Jason, you know, I don't want to go too far into this because, again, he's not here to defend himself. This is where when, when, I, when I would talk to Jason, I would say you, you, can't, you can't equivocate for interpretation of Genesis 1 as a presuppositional necessity such that denying your interpretation of Genesis 1 is somehow a world issue where you're now denying God. Right? The, the, that's just that it can't get you there. And, and, in the same way, hey Tyler, yeah, Tyler, just real quick though, like, um, for example, I I know you you're probably familiar with like census planner and things of this sort, but like, um, for example, we we have right manuscripts that update the names of cities. Now we wouldn't, you know, what I mean, we wouldn't say that that's a that's a defect. Um, that would be a uh, a case. Like, I don't even know how to explain this to you, but there, there are like 10 different cities mentioned in the Old Testament that they, they get their names changed and manuscripts change the names of those cities to keep the records up to date. And I think something similar goes on here. Now, you wouldn't say, you know, obviously when it comes to like something like cosmology, you know, that's a, that's a bigger scale. In this case, we're just talking about like uh, the name of a city on a map somewhere. 
I mean, like, how would you, how would you deal with that then? Like, like, I mean, it's sort of like yeah. Walton was talking about, you know what I mean? About like ephemeral uh, reference, like, like mind, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's your kidney or liver or whatever. They're, they're just talking about the place where you think, wherever that is. Uh, right. Yeah. Walton so, actually, he makes a good point about this. So this, this mm -hmm. is, you know, basically a rose by any other name. So they would update the name to make the location relevant for the right. So, so a thousand years ago, a city might be called something. By the time you get down to when this is scribe, scribe, uh, you know, copying the manuscripts, the city just isn't called that anymore. It's still the same city, same location. Um, it's just called something else now. And so they would update it so that way the readers would know where that was. Now, <clears throat> as moderns, a lot of us have a hard time with that because we're going to say, well, you're altering the text. <laughs> Right, right. right. That, that's not the word that God inspired the author to use. Don't do that. Um, Sounds so, almost like a King James only. So I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying. Um, but I think you know, and and the the for those who you know who haven't read Walton, what Walton says is, you know, when you read through the Old Testament, when it says, um, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your uh, uh, heart, mind, soul, and strength, what's translated as mind in Old Testament is bowels it, it, it's literally you 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 know you you think with your gut um i i don't actually know if, if that's the etymology of the you know the gut reaction type of thing that saying that we have in english but but literally they they thought the the bowels were the were the seat of the person whereas we think of the seat of the person were very you know greco roman in that sense um but none of our translators translated that way they all say mind because that's the concept that that maps on you know, that that's the word that maps onto the same concept of what they would have said was bowels. Um, I don't think that that's the same case here though, because here we're getting more. It's not just simple um, uh, nomenclature, right? It's not. It's not just. It's not just what you know. What 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 word do we place as the the moniker for this concept? Once you start getting into the interpretation of Genesis one, getting into type of genre is this? Is this is this actual chronology that's happening? Are there markers that it is chronology? Are there markers that it isn't chronological? Um, so on and so forth. So I'm I'm not sure that it exactly that, that it's the exact same type of thing that's happening. Right, right. No, I, I'm not asking to lay out the criterion or something like that. I was just pointing out like an example where that happens, where updated records or or altering the text is actually a beneficial thing. You know what I mean? Like people tend to think that it's it's a um, some sort of a textual variant always has to be a negative thing. But, but like in the case of updating the city name, you know, if you're if you're wanting your modern audience to know what what that city is called, you probably would want to update those records. Right. Um, but it, like in this case, you know, like I think one of the major differences is we're talking about, you know, a much grander scale of things, not, not just a city on a map somewhere. Um, yeah. And, and here I would also make the strong difference between what the inspired meaning of the passages and what my interpretation of that passage is. I'm under no delusion to think that my interpretation is infallible. Um, even if, even if I think there is an abundance of reason to think that my interpretation is the best interpretation, right? About, I'm not just talking about Genesis one. I'm talking about any passage. 
right? So, so when it comes to Genesis one, I would never say to someone that if they reject, um, that if they reject, you know, literary framework, that therefore they're rejecting God. That to me seems like a very dangerous move to make because because we're basically elevating our interpretation of a passage up to the level of the inspired word, which which to me is a is a is a far deeper problem. And we wouldn't make that type of argument for really many other passages. Right? For some reason, this only seems to happen with Genesis one. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. In, in we don't do it with any other real non-essential doctrine, right? except for Genesis one. Right? We, I, I don't go to someone and say I don't go to someone and say, hey, uh, in in Job in Job thirty seven it talks about you know the firmament being over the earth. If you deny my understanding of the firmament, therefore in rejection of God's inspired word. I mean, you know, there's a reason why Christians disagree on this thing. There's not, there's not a unified certain interpretation um, of passages. Yeah, you, you know, the way that I look at this, though, is it um, this, uh, this sort of a thing is actually what saves us from historical skepticism. People don't understand this. Like, if, if, if you limit um, some given passage, like say it means, let's say for it means expanse, stretch out space, like I think it does, or you think it means solid, then we, we've, got, we've got two possible interpretations, right, historically. But that doesn't mean that it can mean just anything. That means that we've limited down to two possibilities. That's all it means, right? But a lot of people take that and they think, well, then you can't know what anything, you know, no, the fact is uh, there's only so many um, things any given passage can mean in its historical context. Saying, since we can disagree between these two or three doesn't mean it has an infinite amount of meanings at all. Does that make right. sense? That's absolutely right. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I 100% I agree with you. I mean, this, this, is, this is my same response. Um, when, when, you know, and this is not, a, this is not always a, a young earth response, but it, but it, it happens often enough. Um, when they say, well, you know, if you, if you take Genesis one as being left less than literal, then why don't you take the rest of Genesis as being less than literal? Why don't, why, why do you stop at Genesis one? Why don't you stop all the primeval history all the way up through Genesis 11? Why don't you take all that as, as, as non-historical? Right? And, and I'm just going to say, well, because of genre and textual textual issues, it just just because just because I say one thing is not historical doesn't mean there's that it's that it's arbitrary. It it doesn't mean that we can just fly off the rails for every single passage. Um, so right. in, in the same right. in the same way, I would look at someone and say, okay, well, you know, is is Moses's song in Exodus fifteen? Um, is is that is that literal history? No, it's it's poetry. Well, if you take Exodus 15 as poetry, why don't you take Exodus 16 as poetry? We have textual issues for, for not doing that. Um, we don't just get to fly off the rails. It's not just an arbitrary uh, distinction. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. Just because, just because there's a disagreement upon several options doesn't mean that we just blow the roof off and say, well, that means any option is just as likely. And I, I think skeptics um, often perceive that, you know, when, when we talk about things like this. You know what I mean? 
Like even in that. Yeah, which is ironic because when you talk to atheists and skeptics, <laughs> they love to say, well, atheists don't have a unified belief. Right. No, every, every atheist is a belief under themselves. Great. So there's no unified concept. So you guys are all in complete arbitrary disagreement. So anything can be true, right? They would never allow you know, us to have the same type of argument as they, they, they would. They would never. Right. Then when you start asking them late, well, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Except we all believe that, you know. No, no, they lack a belief, right? I mean, it's like it's like the whole like there are thirty five thousand Christian denominations. I want to be like most of those are you know <laughs> are cultural, geographical. They, they have to do with different uh, you know missions and ideologies. You, you could probably boil that down to about you know five or six different theological systems for the most part. Right. And we would boil that down to synergism or monergism on our levels. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could, depending on how, depending on how basic you want to go, you could keep, you could keep distilling that down to, yeah, you're absolutely right to two systems. Well, I was super excited that you brought up John Walton tonight because I actually just started ancient Near Eastern thought in the old Testament and it's been really great so far. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really really good book. Huge, huge for my understanding. Can't re recommend that book enough. Okay, of both, a really good work. Uh, engineers from worldview issues. I just love the fact that uh, Justin Wilson and Layden Flowers were brought brought up at the same <laughs> time. <laughs> I, I noticed just, Justin was commenting in the YouTube live. Just so you know, is he? Awesome. What do you say? He, he, he said he he haunts y'all. He haunts especially you, Tyler. He haunts you. I'm trying to make an I'm trying to make an analogy to someone that I know we all know. No, Tyler's running with it now. So he for now I, on you're gonna hear he's haunting. He haunts you. Uh, Tyler can't even. It's creepy. I can't even. My pumpkin spice latte apparently. No, yeah, I, I, in all seriousness, I, I don't know. Yes. How, yeah, like you, you, you said, a great job. How, how on earth we got those two mentioned in this? I don't know, but there they, <laughs> there they were. So, Johnson asked me if I saw his review. Already put a review up. Told y'all he's writing something. I don't know if he meant he a comment. It, it, like halfway through y'all's discussion. He had, an, oh, he, he had an epiphany and said he has to go start writing something. So, yeah, he made a comment in the chat. That's what he's. Yeah, he, I know he's listening because he keeps. Yes, Bonsensa. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. He can't hear right now. He's he's responding to my what I'm saying. So. Okay. He's listening. He's not here. He's listening probably to the YouTube. And he can't be listening because YouTube's off, and unless he's in here, he can't hear what we're saying. So, so how did you, Ryan Scott eighty four, find us here? Just curious. What's that? I'm sorry. How'd you get in? How'd you find us to come in here? Oh, um, 
through Tyler. Actually, I'm friends with Tyler on Facebook. Uh, okay. We've been friends on Facebook for a while now. I've, I've been following his work a lot. Um, actually, through an atheist friend of mine, Ben Watkins, um, is how I got turned on to Tyler. So, um, yeah, he's he had posted that this was coming up. And then I think, actually, you had the link for the Discord in there. So this is the first time I've been okay. in on anything like this. But Glad you found it. How about uh, Dio Vivente? You, you're around? I, anyone know this one? Just trying to figure out how these they came. Uh, Dio, Dio, I think, is actually also in the Freethinker group. Okay. Oh, we got another one, Frey. Frey showed up. Hey, hey Ryan. Yeah. Are you uh, are you gonna either come or listen to uh, debate between Ben and I in May? Yes, I am absolutely actually planning on going to that. Uh, um, I sent Ben a message the other day. Um, I live in South Carolina where he used to live. That's actually how I know Ben. Per- I know him personally from when he lived here. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to – my plan is to catch up with him because I haven't seen him since he's been in Virginia. Um, so I'm planning on coming to the conference. Awesome. Very Yeah, I'm super excited. Yeah, hey. I love Ben to death. I think he's wrong, but I love him to death. <laughs> He's he's a really nice guy. I think I think he's wrong no, with he everything too, but he's a nice guy. Yeah, for sure. Very smart. Hey Tyler, uh, I know um, heard a little bit about this, but someone I think it was J, uh, Jason who brought up the dating of the Shabaka text. What mm-hmm. what are some some earlier dates? Like the earliest that I found, I think, was, what, the 25th Dynasty or something like that. Yeah, it's somewhere right around there. It's, uh, I think the earliest dating is, like, the 16th century or uh, 17th century. I've seen some, I've seen some earlier. There, there are some earlier claims, but I think the consensus seems to be somewhere around the 15th or 16th century in the New Kingdom period. Right, like, like most of them, most of them put it before... Uh, what I the top scholars would say, like because the top ones date it later, but the majority of them date it earlier for some reason. Yeah, I, I don't know what the arguments are. That's sort of what I was asking. Um, I haven't actually. So this this it's one of those things where um, you know I didn't I didn't start digging through the peripheral justifications for claims. Um, so. Uh, just because, I mean, if I tried to, if I tried to come to ever, you know, defend every single argument from all the scholars for why the the consensus holds for something, I mean, the paper would be, look. Um, so uh, you know, I just make reference that the Memphite text is 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 kind of the majority view of why, um, but I didn't go into all of the explanations why, and it has to do with um, so certain. Uh, cultural that are uh that are in it right because um we do i mean we do this with the old testament right we can we can place and this is why most conservatives disagree with liberals their their dating has to do with weird things and our you know conservative earlier dating has to do with um typically internal textual factors compared to culture so you have um things like the the weights and measures um, the type of uh, you know economic values that are present so one of the reasons why 
Um, you can argue for an early date of Genesis was the, the price of the slave for Joseph at the time period. Um, we know that, you know, following inflation and cultural changes, it was just radically different in, in the post-exilic period where they want to say that some of these passages are written. Um, you, you, you just get, you, you get these little like cultural and textual indicators um, that, are, that are largely um, are largely derivative, but also for things like a Shabaka stone, which we're not dealing with, you know, manuscripts and translations, um, you start getting into like text types um, and certain families of text that exist during certain periods. Um, and, you know, as, as text types changes over time, you can kind of track them through time. Um, and the, the Shabaka stone kind of falls within that that early New Kingdom period. So, right. So, so as somebody who's, who's studied, like for example, um, the the historical method, um, the like these sorts of cultural indicators would be like what would be considered a disinterested comment or an off the cuff remark, right? And so they would be uh, primary uh, material. Or determining a date of something like off the cuff things like the price of a slave or whatever yeah, yeah. like they're not yeah, they're, they don't have any axe to grind you know and, and say well no it's 25 guys you know <laughs> you know what i mean they just name it um like that's just um the, yeah, well it's, just the, it, it's the furniture of their culture at that time it, it's like uh, have you read bockham's book jesus and the eyewitnesses no oh man you should it's boring as all get out i gotta admit it's a, it's a tough read but so insightful he makes um uh he he makes really good hay of uh onamaziology which is the study of names um and basically shows that the one of the reasons why you can trust the the eyewitness testimony um is because the standard distribution of the names in the new testament matches an early first century distribution of names uh, in Israel at the time, right? Whereas if it was written either um, you know, kind of mid to late first century, um, you would have a different distribution of names um, that, that were in Israel, or as some people claim, like they claim, I think they, they say that, you know, Matthew was written, uh, some people claim Matthew was written in the you know, second early second century in uh, I, I want to say Egypt or something like that. Um, you would actually have a different, a completely different name set. So um, Jews in in kind of north the northern Africa um, were much more Hellenized and uh, and had names like you know Maximus and things you know things like that um, rather than uh, much more standard Hebrew names. And so he goes, I mean, just page after page after page on this kind of statistical study. And how the Gospels, I mean, you would have no way of faking it, right? I mean, they would have had to have done their own statistical analysis in the exact same time period that they were in to know the standard distribution of names in all of the texts in Israel at that time period to get the standard di uh, distribution of names and then use the names in the right quantities to match that standard distribution um, to show, uh, to try to authenticate it as, you know, a, an early to mid first century text. Um, so he just, he just does, I mean, he just does quick work, uh, of, of kind of cr critical late dating gospels. It's really interesting. Again, very dry and very long, but very interesting.
Yeah, uh, but we do, pick that up. we do a yeah, lot I of the same just, things in Old Testament. I mean, yeah, I was just, I was just saying like, um, because I studied the historical method, you know, like historical methodology. And so I, I was, you know, I was able to pick up on like, <clears throat> like what you call cultural furniture or disinterested comments, things like that, yep. where these people don't have an ax to grind. They just mention it like off, off the cuff. Like it's, uh, it's not like they say it, like they're, like they're going to have to prove it to everybody the moment they say it or something like that. And uh, so something like what you just mentioned, which sounds fascinating, uh, because they, they would have to actually um, write their own anachronisms, you know, if you think about it. <laughs> like they, yeah. they, they would have to know the, like you said, they would have to know the future distribution of names would be different and then, and then do that to make it appear or whatever. Well, they would, it, 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 it'd be even more bizarre than that. Um, so you would actually have to have the, an ancient culture develop something like modern historical methods of onomasiology completely out of thin air, um, use it, employ it to make a genre of historical fiction that didn't exist at the time period, and then completely abandon and lose it, lose it that ability to do that immediately. Um, so, it, I mean, it's just, it's right, such a right. stretch. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, so it couldn't be traced later, right? Yeah. And never used again <laughs> in any other text. I have a, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes, not in the show notes, uh, in the chat, the live participants chat. I did okay. a two, two part blog series. You have to put it in the live. You, uh, Brian, do you, oh, yeah, you're still here. Can, can they see the live channels or did you, are they still blocked from it? Most people can only see the live channel. Uh, let me um, post it in general because everyone can see general. So I did. I did uh, two articles, kind of like incidental, kind of unintended statements in the Old Testament that um, help us to uh, to date um, uh, text early. Um, contrary to critical critical dating, um, and a lot of it has to do with these these kind of like unintentional um, dovetail features within the text. I think we we have we have we largely exhausted everyone. This one is there more? Probably. Almost it's one my time, two on the East Coast. Yeah, it's almost two here. Been a long stinking week at work. Yeah. Do you want to uh, kind of wrap up the after show recording and then? Yeah, brought, well, Brian needs to. You you rang Craig, so are you still there, Brian? Let me see if I can find where he stopped started recording it. Kind of move everyone to the to the regular server if anyone wants to talk about whatever. I mean, we could stay here. It doesn't matter, but, but I need to figure out how to stop this live recording. Uh, go back to the beginning. Okay, so you got to do Craig. Okay, Siri.
stop live recording. You, mean, you haven't gotten to that level yet? <laughs> Let's see if uh... it's Alexa now. Oh, Brian's typing. 